There's no beating around the bush here because it is the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to Volume 1 of our August 1998 shows looking at the World Wrestling Federation. Yes, it is party time here at Wrestling 20 Years Ago Podcast Towers. We have been bringing these shows to you now for five long, long years. Dan Welling is here and he's brought the bunting. Uh, yes, I absolutely have. <laughs> Good day to you, Dan. How are we? Yes, very well. Thank you, Rory. That leaves Eric to bring the beer. And I'll bring some good Pacific Northwest craft beer. You know I will. You can definitely stay. Three volumes for you in August 1998. Volume two, ECW. Looking out there, really quite tremendous uh, heatwave pay-per-view. And volume three, WCW. Looking at their Road Wild pay-per-view. But this, volume one, World Wrestling Federation. And we're back where we begun, looking at SummerSlam. A very busy month of news, Eric. And it's all yours. So don't start on the beer quite yet. Sure, let's talk about SummerSlam, the uh, freeway to Hades, or something like that. Yeah, I think we'll set off a freeway to Hades now. They didn't really mention often enough the tagline for SummerSlam, in my opinion. So, freeway to Hades it is now, or motorway to the banks of sticks, or something like that. Yeah, SummerSlam took place at the very end of the month, on the 30th of August, at HQ, Madison Square Garden, headlined by two huge matches. Triple H winning back the Intercontinental title from The Rock in an epic ladder match in the semi-main. And in the main events, one of the, I would say, probably the biggest built WWF title match, certainly this year, maybe for a couple of years, in which Steve Austin successfully defended the title against The Undertaker, who, spoiler alert, did not turn heel at the end, as had been mooted. We will break down SummerSlam for you match by match later on in the show. You know, I know that news isn't always the time for commentary, but Freeway to Hades does sound like a Jimmy Hart version of an ACDC song. Um, but <laughs> I'll ask you, gentlemen, whether we're down for a DX split. The Freeway to Hades, baby! Yes, a DX split. Uh, heavily mooted in the sheets in the early part of the month. Uh, the talk was Triple H was going to break off and go heel yet again and feud with DX with a certain S. Michaels Esquire filling in in his place. These rumours are very, very heavy in the sheets, so much so that play was made of it on WWF television a couple of weeks later, where DX addressed the rumours, and they did indeed give us a split, if you will. Uh, you could probably use your imagination if you hadn't seen it. We're going back to storyline and all that. Rumours of their breaking up are currently seemingly exaggerated, but keep it here. We'll tell you first. And here's a combination of words and letters I never thought I'd see together. Bart Gunn, the toughest SOB in The Brawl for All. You can't argue with it, can you? Yes, on August the 24th, The Brawl for All finally came to an end. Yay! In which Bart Gunn defeated Bradshaw in the final by knocking him clean out in 40 seconds. Winning a legitimate $75,000. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that was not a worked number. Bart Gunn is $75,000 richer which should just about cover the shame he has to deal with in the locker room for knocking out JR's boy, Steve Williams, earlier on in the tournament. And yes, as is our duty, we will discuss the Brawl for All as we go a bit later on in this show. Suffice to say, they are already planning on bringing it back next year. Let that one sink in, as they say. Bollocks. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Make it three. Uh, and the headline uh, from almost the Las Vegas Strip in Las Vegas, Nevada. The WWF, you can check out, but you can never leave. Yes, uh, 10 years ago, national expansion might, meant buying up local territories. 
Now it means buying up hotels for a hotel in Nevada, known as the Debbie Reynolds Hotel, under her ownership for five years, has been successfully bought by the World Wrestling Federation for anything between $10.5 and $11 million. The plans are, laughs at the ready, to turn it into, and I quote, a WWF-themed tourist attraction, which, given the current nature of the product, I shudder to think as to what some of the rides could be. But it's not all been plain sailing for the Fed. They also tried to buy land, uh, buy a hotel space in Times Square, but the owners of that one only accepted the second highest bidder, which was not the Federation. So, Vince, you're not quite Hanna-Barbera Walt Disney just yet. But you're getting there. And speaking of Vince... Yeah, he goes on another AOL rant. Again. Whenever I look through the sheets and I see the words at the top of the headline, McMahon goes on rant on AOL. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, as, I'm as crazy as he will be in about a minute's time. Here are some, just some, of the excerpts from this, this wildness. I hear from Paul Heyman approximately once every three months when he wants something. That's, that's the extent of the relationship, although on occasion I want something from him too. Moving swiftly on. Rod Van Dam. Watch this step. Regarding WCW signing Ultimate Warrior, who's left that WCW can take? Bruno Sammartino. Everybody's obsessed with Bruno, isn't he? Regarding his son Shane McMahon, and we'll talk about this shortly as well. Shane will take over when he can push me out of the driver's seat. His performance on heat is very different and refreshing, but he needs more experience. The only way to get that is to do it. Thanks for the warning. And then, when we supposedly went off the air, so to speak, Vince just, well, he went haywire. If we don't straighten it out soon, Bob Pittman, I'm going downstairs to the no-excuse gym, open seven days a week, 24 hours a day. My goal is to add another quarter inch to these massive 20-inch guns. Speaking of massive, wait until you get a load of a new WWF toy. It's called a Boss Hoss. It's a 351 cubic inch Chevrolet engine. Fitted between my legs, zero to 60 in one and a half seconds. Go on, Vince, bring it home, boy. It's the ultimate crotch rocket. <laughs> Vince McMahon, ladies and gentlemen, living his product to the very, very last. Oh, boy, there's nowhere to go after that, but just take you to Patreon, really, where we are for $5 a month, where you can, as always, get the shows when they are ready to roll before they are out. All three are ready at the end of the month. But in, in addition to that, not only do you ensure that this podcast keeps on going, you will also get bonus content. Oh, yes, that's right, ladies and gents. At least once every month, a brand new show not related to the main shows will be with you in your inbox as soon as it is ready. But fear not, the main programs will always be here always every month, and will always be free of charge. As we reach our fifth birthday, thank you everybody who subscribes, or if you just listen for free, it could not be more appreciated, I assure you. So lots of TV to unpack over the next four weeks until we get to SummerSlam, but we're going to start with a brand new show which took place on Sunday, August 2nd, known as Sunday Night Heat. As we hinted at last month, currently just original planned for five shows as a bit of extra bill for SummerSlam, but uh, the ratings have been good for this, so it looks as though they're going to keep it going forward. This was a wild 45 minutes and 11 seconds, which we're not going to try and break down for you match by match, segment by segment, because we would be here for four hours and five. But Eric, your thoughts on Sunday Night Heat, the episodes you saw, the first edition, uh, whether you think it'd be a good idea to keep it going forward. What were your opening thoughts on Sunday Night Heat? Oh, man. Opening thoughts are, I thought they hit a home run, uh, Grand Slam. I mean, warts and all, and you guys will, you know, touch on some of those. 
this show was just packed full of action. It reminded me of some of those late 96, early 97 Raws when they really needed two hours, but they still were in the one-hour time slot. And it was just relentless. And you look up at the clock and the hours passed by, and you're like, holy crap, I didn't even realize the time had gone. I mean, look at this card. You had Edge and, and Double J, which is a good match. DX was out crazy over. The Headbangers and Draws versus Kai and Tai with Val and Yamaguchi-san and Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. I mean, that storyline is bonkers. Shamrock and versus D'Lo. And then Owen and Rock versus Kane and Mankind. That all took place in the span of an hour, not to mention some other segments. Shane McMahon. I mean, this thing was just jam-packed. You couldn't possibly squeeze another ounce of content into it. And so for a for a show that's going to run on Sunday nights and I guess kind of complement Monday Night Raw, hype the pay-per-view, uh, and then also hopefully act as a place where they can put new guys over. They ran a package for Draws here. They ran a package for Bart Gunn. Um, and so if they can use this as a platform to kind of start building guys before they're really ready for prime time, all that, I mean, it was really, really good. And I'll turn it over to you to let you guys talk about the singular thing that almost ruined the amazing show. <laughs> and Dan is going to open that up. Dan, just before we went on air, you said that you watched this most of Sunday Night Heat with the volume turned down for about 15 minutes in. Tell the dear listeners why that was. Um, because the heir apparent to the throne is is doing his best to try and ruin um, almost all of his father's new inventions with his commentary. Because um, he is... Obviously, he's uh, is his first time on the job, so I've got to cut him some slack. Um, but he was clearly nervous when he first came out with two um, ladies, and they were on commentary with him, which was a bit of a mistake in the first place because they were randomly shout um, obscenities during matches. But then he overcorrected and became too loud, way or too over exuberant. Trying to use, trying to make use onomatopoeia in his commentary every two minutes or so, um, and yeah, it was just, it was like you know, Spinal Tap turned up to eleven, but he turned up to fifteen, and it was like you know, try and turn down a little bit too much there, Shane. Um, but I would, Eric, I would echo Eric's sentiments that there was so much going on in this show; it was non-stop. Um, and not in, as well as the matches themselves, there was stuff with DX, you know, trying to get um, two female plants to, um, you know, flash. That's you know, in you know, certain terms, um, some kind of uh, I can't remember the name of the show, but in, you know, them being brought in to plug a USA Network show with a actor tackling over Val Venus, uh, yeah, and packages for draws. The new um, NFL wrestler brought in Edge getting a you know decent win over. Jeff Jarrett breaking up with Tennessee Lee in the first place. There was loads of stuff going on here, but yeah, for me, if you ask me to remember one thing of the new episode of Sunday Night Heat, it would be Shane McMahon's commentary, and unfortunately it wasn't for how good he was. Can we say that Shane was just trying too hard here, or do we think he is really like this? No, I think he was trying, I think he was trying too hard, and what I really think it is, and I you know, how old is Shane? Maybe in his late late 20s? Yeah, he's, um, he's 28. 28, okay. So he is, I'm certain that Vince, he Shane is doing what Vince McMahon thinks MTV is. And so he's over-enthusiastic, he's brash, he's bold, he's quote-unquote young and hip. He's kind of doing that frat boy thing. And that's probably right within Shane McMahon's wheelhouse as a personality and who he is growing up, you know, where he grew up in the family he grew up in. And I'm certain that this is Shane's personality turned up to 11. But 
the fact that that is means that Vince and whoever's producing him backstage on commentary need to recognize that they need to course correct a little bit and tone it down because sometimes when you turn a character up to 11, like Dan said, you're really turning it up to 14 and that becomes incessant. I think it actually fit the tenor of the show, quite frankly. Yes, it was it was hard to take after the first 10 minutes. Repeating, repeating, everything, everything. He says, he says, to get it over, to get it over. Yeah, yeah, baby, baby. It's When you knew that's what you were getting, you think, okay, I can't really take much more of this, and that's entirely understandable. But it fit the relentless bashing over the head that we got for the 45 minutes, 11 seconds. And this is what the USA Network want. Here's Bonnie Hammer, their senior vice president, talking about the WWF's programming in general. If you really take a look, the show has no more violence or aggressiveness than any primetime series you have on the air. Look at NYPD Blue. They're far more violent. Yeah, there's some sexual innuendo, but it's fun, though. It's humor. Am I going to have my four-year-old watch it? No. And I love this line. It's priceless. But my husband grew up watching it, and he wound up in Harvard Divinity School. (laughs) <laughs> so that's all right then but i thought this was a great show this first edition of sunday night heat you could not take your eyes off for a second i was cast back to the first two months of monday night show in that respect there wasn't a second let up you something was coming along here's a three-minute match between ed and jeff jarrett here's a bark on segment here's a piece on draws here are dx out showing you know getting two young ladies to bring the goods or whatever everything there and the best of all you've got Mario Lopez, I think, is the guy's name from. Was it called Pacific Blue? The program, Eric, is that right? That that's right, and it wasn't Mario Lopez of all the celebrities there that I that I took note of. But yeah, Mario Lopez was there too. The reason I mentioned him is because he, for me, is the other other guy in Saved by the Bell. But <laughs> if, if you include Mr. Belding, and you should, he's the other 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 guy in Saved by the Bell. In fact, it is a little Saved by the Bell fact for you. In the very first series, he did some amateur wrestling. And in doing so, he actually exposed the business, too. This was in 1990, so there you go. Kayfabe got a kick in even there. Yeah, Sunday Night Heat. My one question before we move on, I'll come to you, Dan, on this one. Will they be able to bring the big names on it every week? Because here they loaded the card with all their top echelon stars. I think they're going to need to do that every week if they can to really keep it must-watch TV. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, probably not. I think you run the risk then of having too much exposure to the big guns and then makes people less likely to tune into Monday Night Raw unless they can keep angles hot. Um, but to me, I just think it's it's another extra hour program in which they can use to develop um, younger stars or even like intercontinental level guys at most. You know, Rock and Owen kind of felt like a really good level of person they can get on a, on a sort of regular basis. Um yeah, yes, I think it's going to be guys who can use the experience a little bit more and use them exposure, but not guys who are already really prominent figures on on Monday Night Raw, like Austin and um, you know the you know the two brothers Taker and Kane, for example. They're probably way too much higher for Sunlight Heat. Um, yeah, what do you reckon, Eric? Uh, for the record, it was Amy Hunter from Pacific Blue. Um, oh, and, of, uh, course. of course, and um, no, you know, I think. It's it's not it's not feasible or possible to keep this pace up every week. But I think if they do it right and they do enough kind of hot and cold heat shows, and maybe they intersperse you know new guys with hot angles and you know kind of balance the show like that, kind of realize if they're you know if you're doing a slow build to a pay per view, you've got three weeks left. You don't have to have the hottest show possible, but when you're building into a show like SummerSlam, maybe you want to turn the turn the you know temperature up. All these you know temperature based uh, puns are 
especially uh, necessary here. Yeah, I think it's something that they could really capitalize on. But I think we're we're you know uh, we're kind of Pollyanna-ish if we think that they're going that every episode is going to be as good as this one because I just don't think it's feasible. They still don't have that much depth, frankly. No, I think that's it. And I do wonder because it doesn't look as though it's ever going to become a rap show, like I said last month. It's going to be fresh matches and most importantly of all, fresh angles going forward. So there's always going to be the possibility to bring the big names in if they really feel the need to augment the ones going forward on Raw and the pay-per-views. But I think you're right. It's probably going to be bottom of the first, top of the second level. You, The kind of main event we got on this, this first one, the tag team main event, I think that's probably the best we're going to get. Put it this way, I wouldn't hold out too much up. We're going to get the Austin Undertaker rematch on Heat anytime soon. <laughs> so you're going to be disappointed if you're going to be you know, turning over from the Antiques Roadshow to watch something like that. But otherwise, I think this is an excellent idea supplementing what they've got. And I really hope it does become a regular one going forward in September and beyond. Hi, everybody. It's post-production Rory here. In all the excitement, I forgot to give you the TV ratings for the month. So here they are. On August the 3rd, Raw emerged victorious posting a 4.5 against Nitro's 4.2. It was very close on August the 10th. It has been awarded as a victory to Nitro by a rounded up 4.65 to 4.55. And Nitro won the next two weeks, 4.9 to 4.16 and 5.2 to 4.68. Oh dear. Cue the 1994 Raw music. The first Raw of the month open with a nation out for a promo. The Rock calls out Austin and The Undertaker so he and Owen can lay the smackdown on them. Commissioner Slaughter comes out, but The Rock tells him to shut up, head to the back and grab the tag titles. Austin and Taker come out. Austin heads straight to the ring, but Taker pauses and Kane and Mankind come out. Austin is getting beat down while Taker brawls with Mankind through the crowd. Austin brawls with the nation in the ring and holds them off with a chair. Golga, accompanied by Sable, defeated Mark Miro after interference from Giant Silver. Dan Seven withdrew from the Brawl for All tournament, stating he had nothing left to prove. The Godfather took his place and faced Scorpio in a Brawl for All tournament contest, with Godfather picking up the win after just three rounds. Kane and Mankind defeat the New Age Outlaws in a tag match, the highlight of which was Kane hitting a double suplex on both Outlaws at once. Kane picked up the win after a tombstone on Road Dog, who was in fact not the legal man. Hawk defeated Jeff Jarrett with a neckbreaker. Animal came down to celebrate with him after the match, but Southern Justice ran in to attack them both. Dross also got involved and took out Double J. Vince McMahon came out for a promo. Vince says that Austin and Taker will lose the tag team titles tonight. Vince calls out Taker, asking him to explain his actions from last week. Taker obliges, but so does Austin. Austin takes the mic from Vince and says he does not care about trust because Austin doesn't trust anyone. He says the only belt he cares about is the WWF title and he leaves his tag belt behind. Undertaker tells Austin to shut up. Taker says that Vince doesn't want them to be champions. Taker went to Austin like a man and asked him for a shot at the WWF title, and now he wants Austin to take what is his. Austin grabs the belt and slowly leaves. Taker says that between now and SummerSlam, Austin is the safest SOB in the WWF, but at the pay-per-view, Undertaker will take what is rightfully his. Backstage, The Rock says he couldn't care less about the issues between Austin and Taker. He says that he and Owen are going to be the next tag champs. Triple H and Xbox come out together even though they are facing each other next for an Intercontinental title shot at SummerSlam. 
The match ends when China trips X-Pac on the outside and Hunter takes advantage, hitting a pedigree for the win. Val Venus and Takamichi Noku took on Kai and Tai. When Val tried to tag in Taka, he turns on him and attacks Val. Taka and Kai and Tai beat down Val, with Taka revealing that Yamaguchi-san's wife is in fact his sister. They drag Val to the back where the beatdown continues. D'Lo Brown vs Dan Seven ended in disqualification after interference from Mark Henry, Steve Blackman and Ken Shamrock. As D'Lo tried to leave, Edge attacked him. We see footage of Val being beaten down backstage. Tiger Ali Singh comes out. He says that all American women have no class. He offers $500 for any woman who can come out and strip. A large woman comes out and Tiger says that she is the average American woman. As she is stripping, he says he'll give her the money if she puts her clothes back on instead. Val Venus is pulled into a room backstage at where Yamaguchi-san has a sword. Our main event sees The Rock and Owen Hart challenge for The Undertaker and Steve Austin's WWF tag titles. The match saw Taker and Austin retain their belts after Taker pinned Owen up with a tombstone. Mankind ran out and locked the claw on Taker after the match, but Kane ran in and hit Mankind with a chair. Taker also hit Mankind with a chair. The Outlaws ran down and we have a wild brawl which culminates in Road Dog taking a stunner. Before the show goes off the air, we cut backstage and we see Val Venus tied up naked with Yamaguchi's on about to take the sword to his genitals. Don't worry, Chris, we're coming to Kaintai. But first, we're going to talk about the presentation of mainly the August the 3rd Raw, although we saw it all throughout the month. And that is just how shoot-tastic things are getting. We've hinted at this a lot, especially over the last three and a half years with all three companies. But here I thought they went completely over the top. You had a backstage interview with Hawk where he addressed himself as Michael Hegstrand, talking about his very own personal problems. You had an IC number one contenders match between Triple H and X-Pac, which ended when China tripped up Pac, allowing Triple H to get the win, in which in the same sentence, JR dropped the phrases, calling an audible, hi Kieran, premeditated and suggesting Helmsley might have gone into business for himself. A few weeks later, Hawk was back on commentary talking about no selling a pile driver in Memphis and tell us something we don't know. But even so, Eric, everybody knows what pro wrestling is. We don't need reminding of it, do we? It's so cringy. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of come out of nowhere and it kind of hasn't because they've had Ken Shamrock now for a year plus and they've been kind of working towards this for a while. And it just doesn't work. I think we're all kind of in that space where as the type of wrestling fans that, that the three of us are and the most of the listeners to the show are, we're kind of willing to kind of put up that cloak between wrestling and reality and kind of filter everything through that. And, and kind of we've kind of adjusted our lenses accordingly. Um, and, you know, we know that, Michael Hedstrand has substance abuse problems, but it's really uncomfortable for that to be worked into a storyline. That's its own segment altogether, I think. Um, but we know they're bringing in all these, you know, mixed martial artists, quote unquote, shoot fighters. Um, but they've already ruined that essentially by having, for example, the rock, um, um, that, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there by having, uh, Dan Severn on TV, just kind of like talking into the, into the camera and being completely unintimidating. He looks like your dad's friend who sells used cars. You know, they've kind of taken the mystique off of all these guys. And so, um, and what I meant to say is then you have 
guys who are like clearly kayfabe, like Austin, like Rock, like Undertaker, like Kane. And those are really wrestling guys. And they're trying to have this universe where you exist Kane and the Undertaker who can spit fire and or shoot fire and, you know, do magical things. And Stone Cold Steve Austin, who can assault his boss and not get fired and, in fact, get promoted. And then you have all these, quote-unquote, shooty guys. And it just doesn't work, and it's cringy. And I don't think that they have the nuanced ability to write the storylines as necessary to really work this in. I don't think it makes sense at all. I don't I, I don't want to see Hawk from LOD, the most badass tag team of the 80s, talking about his fucking problems with alcohol. Like, it doesn't work. And it just ruins the mystique, whatever mystique is left in him. And if they go ahead and go forward with this with top guys like The Undertaker, like Kane, you know, what if Kane's talking about, you know, oh, brother, this is the finish to the match. You know, it's like that's just going to take it down a rabbit hole that I don't want to be a part of. Wrestling has to have that mystique, that magic to it. Even if we know, you know, how it's done, we still like to see it played out. We don't like to hear it talked about. So it's just I don't see a good I don't see a good outcome from any of this and i don't think it makes any of the participants look particularly strong i agree dan wade keller has said in the past that um when he's watching wrestling he doesn't want to be convinced that it's real but he wants to be able to forget that it's not don't you think exactly isn't that the kind of maxim we should be living by here yeah i mean it's absolutely right and i don't know what who the audience is for this really i mean we're in a brilliantly great boom period of wrestling right now where there's so many new fans watching this product. And if they're listening to X-Pac and Triple H and JR's going, spouting off audibles and, oh, he's changed the affairs and gone into business for himself, like, A, they aren't going to understand what they mean. So it's a completely wasted sentence. And two, it's going to, you know, annoy a minority of your audience because at the minute, let's face it, you know, the three of us who watch this show are not the primary audience right now because you know four four and a half million people are watching this show as well as us so what's the point of doing it you know i don't you know what's the point of having a guy with this weird face paint and spikes coming out of it you know wearing this big jock strap with spikes coming out of it going my name is mikey and i'm really upset for my uh, performance just last week it's like no this is a cartoon gimmick and why do we need to bring in this random weird live stuff into it. it does not work for this this wider audience that are watching wrestling um i don't know whether they think that the whole casual audience now doesn't wants to move completely away from wrestling and wants to watch more of a sports entertainment soap opera style let's have weird you know real life storylines coming into play here that's the only reason i can think of but at the same time it's just confusing to those who don't understand what's don't understand the business and don't understand the history and personal lives of the wrestlers like Hawk or or Paul Levesque or whoever it is. And it's it's annoying to the people that do that and they're probably more likely to turn off. Yeah, that's just it, isn't it? Who are they actually appealing to here? I'm thinking of the X Pac Triple H match in particular. Nobody watching that match thought that China was actually shooting on Sean Walkman. Mm-hmm. For some reason she went against script and tripped him up because she should. What are we meant to believe that Triple H actually shot, you know, gave him a shoot shoot pedigree in the middle of the ring and kept him down for a three count? No supposed smart fan who I imagine they're trying to appeal to here. They aren't gonna buy that. Nobody thinks they're watching a shoot apart from the brawl for all, which we'll get to, so muddying the water still further. They're just being too clever by half here, I think. And the WWF is the biggest fantasists in sports entertainment and all that, once again. You would have thought they would be the last people on earth to do this. 
I think there's one Vince we have to point the finger here. It's not necessarily Vince McMahon, although he, of course, signs everything off. I think it's Vince Russo, the former Vic Venom, who has been head writer now for about 16 months. I think he's pretty much assumed even more power since then. If you go back and read some of his WWF magazine articles in around 95, 96, even before Raw magazine came along, he's dropping a lot of insider stuff there. I remember his build for the Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12, even at a time where we thought that Brett and Sean were still kind of getting on. There's a lot of stuff in there, which we now know was pretty close to the bone and pretty true. There was an interview with the Ultimate Warrior, I remember, in which Vince was out as the owner and all sorts of stuff like that. So I think his mucky fingerprints are all over this one. And somebody needs to step in because it is damaging my enjoyment. Even though I am a quote-unquote smart fan. I don't need to be reminded of it every five minutes. I want to get lost in the moment. I want to believe that these scripted events are real sporting, take place of sporting achievement. I want to think that Triple H beat X-Pac because he wanted to become number one contender to the Intercontinental Championship. I don't need reminding that I'm watching a show. I don't need reminding that this is some sort of design. Nobody watching feels enriched by thinking that. When you're at the water cooler or the playground or whatever on a Tuesday morning, you're not talking about, oh, did you see that angle where they had China trip of X-Pac and they suggested it might have been real? No, you're not talking about that. You're talking about, which we'll get to later on, Kane pinning Undertaker with a chokeslam and taking his tag team title, then Undertaker popping back up very quickly to suggest that they might still be in cahoots. That's the kind of thing I watch for WWF for. Basically, two Vinters, if you're listening, Leave the smart stuff to us, okay? Mankind kicked off the second Raw of the month with a promo. He says he's tired of being deceived and he wants answers from Vince McMahon. Vince says that it must be humiliating needing help and that Vince detests people who need help. Vince says Kane had hit Mankind on purpose last week and that Taker had also chosen to hit Mankind instead of Kane. Vince said it was clear that Taker and Kane were in collusion against everyone else and Taker and Kane are one and the same. Kane and Paul Bearer came out. Bearer said Vince was just trying to get into everyone else's heads. Vince declared the man in the red suit was in fact the Undertaker and demanded that Kane remove his mask. Vince reached out for Kane's mask and the lights went out. When the lights came back on, Vince was standing with his hand on the Undertaker's face. Taker laid out Mankind and chased Vince backstage. Sable introduced Luna and the Oddities, Golga, Giant Silver and Kurgan. Luna then took on Jacqueline in a horrible match with Luna picking up the win after a splash. Darren Drozdorov defeated Savio Vega in a Brawl for tournament match. Hunter and China arrived and Michael Cole tried to interview them. China told him to suck it and shoved him into a car. LOD 2000 came out. Hulk got scared by his promo during his entrance and fell down. They cut to commercial. After the break, Hulk tried to attack Southern Justice but was dragged to the back by officials. Droz ran out to team with Animal and cleared the ring of Southern Justice, but Jeff Jarrett ran in and nailed Droz with a guitar. They showed Southern Justice and Double J turning on Tennessee Lee, laying him out on Sunday Night Heat. We had a DX promo in which they all called each other jackoffs over and over. They decided that they weren't going to split up after all and were about to celebrate by dropping their pants when Trina spoke and interrupted. She said everyone was tired of seeing their asses. She said if anyone's going to show off a DX split, it would be her and revealed herself to be wearing a thong. But Carl Ambush they announced this and Bickup with JR for a while. The Godfather was scheduled to take on Vader, but the Godfather negotiated his way out of the match by offering Vader some of his hose. Bart Gunn then knocked Vader out on the outside. 
Dustin Runnels did a backstage promo saying that the Ness segment was unfit for family viewing, but we all had choices about what to watch. He suggested that we all turn to the Discovery Channel. John Bobbitt pushed Val Venus out in a wheelchair. Val had an ice pack on his crotch. Val says he was half the man he used to be. He eventually jumped up, revealing that he was in fact fine, explaining that he was saved by the butcher's block being cold, leading to shrinkage. Val said he had fun with Mrs. Yamaguchi-san, but no woman was worth this much trouble and told her to leave. Bradshaw defeated Mark Miro in a brawl for all semi-final. Our main event saw a four-corner tag team match with Austin and The Undertaker defending their tag titles against the teams of Rock and D'Lo Brown, the New Age Outlaws and Kane and Mankind. They had a long match which ended when Kane pinned Taker after a chokeslam to win the belts. As soon as the referee counted three, Taker sat up immediately and got to his feet and Lawler claimed that Taker had screwed Austin. Tonight, I come to you, uh, a humble man, half the man that I used to be. But you know, it's like they say, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. You know, there's only... There's only one way to stop the mighty boa. And that's to sever it at the head. Well, ladies, you better take a, a rain check on them new snakeskin boots. Because, because the big Balboski is alive and ready to fight, baby! <laughs> and, well, um, I guess the Valboski lives. Well, apparently. Apparently, Yamaguchi-san did not get the job done. Val, exactly. What happened last week when the lights went out? Well, you know something? Thanks to a cold butcher's block <laughs> and a little shrinkage and, of course, my good friend, John Wayne Bobbitt, who just happened to cut the lights just at the appropriate time. The big Valboski is standing at full attention, cocked, rocked, and ready to unload. <laughs> well, listen, Mr. Bobbitt, I understand that you and Bob have, have become quite the buddies. Been going all over town, right? What about last night? Oh, we had a great time. We all we live on the edge, you know. We went uh, out uh, for a couple beers, and uh, Val ordered a club soda with a slice, and the bartender wanted to cut us off. <laughs> listen, I want to I want to know one thing real quick. Not trying to cut you short or anything, but well, oh, oh. now come on. Oh, I understand that your ex-wife Lorena actually, actually threw something out the window, and 
and it was lost out there for a while, but they found it, right? Yeah, they found it. Well, it's a good thing because I was thinking how funny that would picture that would look on the side of a milk carton, but it's a good thing. Now listen, Val, I know you got something else you want to say. Like I said, not cutting you short, but go ahead, Val. I most certainly do. You know, I'd like to celebrate this moment with a very, very special woman in my life. Baby, it's been a long, hard road. <laughs> but it ends right here, baby. <laughs> you know something? Oh, don't cry, baby. You see, no woman is worth the trouble that you brought me. No woman. She's getting dumped. Mrs. Yamaguchi's getting dumped. I hope you enjoyed the ride, baby, because this is where you get off. So take your shoes from under my bed and hit the bricks. <laughs> Whoa. Adios. Adios. <laughs> well, the uh, Valboski is alive and well. Mrs. Yamaguchi has been the dump. Ralph's got something in his hand. Oh, baby. One more thing. Goodbye, lady. <laughs> well, what you gonna do with that? Oh. Oh, well. Okay, it's the first two weeks of TV there, and... Chris Lacey, prick up your ears, my friend. It's time. It's time. It's time. The very last thing we saw on the August 3 Raw was Val Venus being dragged into a dressing room by Kai and Tai, featuring the now freshly heel turn of Takamichinoku. Bad move, by the way. In which they... To, not to put too fine a point on it, so to speak, they wanted to chop off his cock. Sorry, choppy, choppy, his pee pee. There we go. Let's be let's be TV fourteen about this, eh? Choppy, choppy, his pee pee, and the screen went black. That is how we closed off the August the third Raw. I am not going to make the cliffhanger joke. I've been doing this show for far too long. Fast forward a week to August the tenth, and Val Venus is in the ring, flanked by Mrs. Yamaguchi. More on her in a second, and one John Wayne Bobbitt. Now. If that name is not familiar to you, you can do one of two things. You can either ask Jeeves, or you can listen to this. And then there was this guy who made his wife so mad one night that she cut off his wiener. And when he finally came to, he found that Mr. Happy was missing He couldn't quite explain it It'd always just be Thanks, Al. Yes, we are meant to believe that John Wayne Bobbitt, he of something went missing fame, 
somehow leapt to Valvenus's defense just as the lights went out and ensured that the same fate was did not befall him. Well, one thing to note as well, John Wayne Bobbitt has now done some adult movies of his own since he had that little run in in 1993. And judging by his verbal performance here, I can see why that is the line of acting he went into because his vocal performance here was truly appalling. Dan, I'm going to come to you on this award-winning piece of television first. Or not come. Uh, Dan. <laughs> I think that's three innuendo slash single entendres in the, in the last two minutes we've been doing this. Can we get it up to ten? There we go. Dan, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to you first then. Can you sum up this sorry, sorry state? And indeed, tie it into the shooty discussion we were having ten minutes ago. Well, I just, I just want to point out that if... What, given what happened to him, maybe it wasn't just his verbal performance that was uh, weak on the, the front. Um, da, 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 da. Hey, um, <laughs> I like to point again as a man. I like to nominate that snap you hear just as the as it fades to black as one of the worst horrible sounds I've ever heard in wrestling. Um, <laughs> the old adage of not seeing something being much more terrifying and anything you actually see on screen is yeah it was definitely true for me as a man let's put it that way right again i'm going to say that as val venus's gimmick is that he is um a ladies man i actually don't detest the idea of this actually happening to him but i do think that it was done much too quickly from after he debuted and just the whole execution of it was just awful. You know, from the whole minutes that Mr. John Bobbitt, the walking, I'll show up for any company that will pay me, came out. And implying that he was the reason behind Val Venus's escape is, is ludicrous. Like, this is, this as a man, what happened to Val potentially is one of the most horrifying things I can even think of. And playing it off as a joke on the 10th of uh, August is horrible. It, 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 it ruined almost all what's been built up for about three weeks for this whole angle. Um, and it's just, it's just like we criticize the Fed for being, you know, too much of a shock rally occasionally. Well, this is certainly one of those occasions. There's no payoff. There's no furtherment of story here. It was just shock value. And your ultimate in. Tune in next to see. Tune in next week to see if Valvinus still has his penis. And he, <laughs> and he, yeah. Um, and he yeah, he, he does. Let's move on. Let's let's ditch this entire angle. Let's let's uh, shove the poor woman to the side who you know has a bit too much. Well, you're a bit too much trouble for me, girl. Um, you know, here's a battery and move on. You know, I will. Yeah, I'll I will praise. The five seconds of what actually happened with the sword and the and the lights, but everything else is just abysmal. Eric, whoever came up with this needs to take a long, hard look at themselves. Five uh, and six. <laughs> well, you know, Welling made a a, a very uh, solid point in that this was, you know, all the action took place off screen, and this was so this was very Shakespearean, um, <laughs> and. And really, if we want to get down to it, I, I'm just going off the, a couple th in my head that I'm the most familiar with. But I think if we figure out, if we work backwards here and we think that Yamaguchi-san might, this isn't going to be perfect, but Yamaguchi-san might be like a Caliban type figure. 
and maybe Val. Val is either Prospero or he might be Ferdinand. Uh, and then certainly Yamaguchi-san's uh, wife, Taka's sister, is, is Miranda. Maybe Ariel. I'm not sure how this works. But, yeah, this was, this was you know, something that you could see down at the local theater uh, on, on every Saturday. You know, uh, your dad's other friend, not the used car salesman, as Prospero. This I was see what sort of theaters are in your area there, Eric. Yeah. Well, you know, Portland, Oregon does have the most uh, adult entertainment clubs per capita of any city in the U.S., and that is a shoot. Jeez. Um, Jeez. So um, this storyline has just made Raw just so much less enjoyable, in my opinion. It's so cringy. And, like, I, I, I appreciate, like, the whole love triangle aspect of it with Yamaguchi-san and Taka's being Taka's uh, wife being Taka's sister and Val. But they just – this could have gone another direction, and it would have been really kind of compelling trashy television. But when you bring in Choppy Choppy Pee-Pee, first of all, it's, like, so fucking racist. And second of all, like – it's just gross, and it. I don't know again who this is entertaining because it's too cringy to be funny. And you bring in John Wayne Bobbitt, and that name is just further cringe. And so, I don't know. This is funny to Vince McMahon, obviously, or it wouldn't be on television. And you mentioned Vic Venom, and it's probably funny to him too, or else it wouldn't be on television. But I don't know. Again, I don't know what broad portion of the audience the story is appealing to from soup to nuts. Um, and that's number seven, I think. Um, and if we hadn't, if we hadn't gotten to where this went, and it hadn't reached its, you know, conclusion, this could have been a kind of a fun, um, adulterous storyline, you know, mid card storyline. But it just got taken so far out of out of whack. Um, so I don't know. I can't defend it. I tried. I can't. There's nothing redeeming about how this storyline resolved in my mind. Chris Lacey, I'm sorry. You're wrong. Uh, after all that discussion i definitely need a stiff drink that is after god's sake that is after i make a note that we're going to be doing a live show in portland oregon one day going forward again who does this appeal to who does this appeal to chris lacy boom apart from chris lacy obviously i'm sure he's chuckling away as we speak you said it best dan there's no payoff to this either quite frankly it gets cut off or it doesn't. If it gets cut off, where the hell do you go from there? These things don't grow back in my experience. So, in fact, in fact, you know what? We should be glad that didn't actually happen. Could you imagine them actually doing a gimmick of porn star with that? No, it's, it's too horrifying well, to think about. Especially since they're blending the line of kayfabe in reality. Who knows what it would have happened? <laughs> God, yes. Um, the big red X that they use for the outlaw rhombus Brutus BP King would be required here once more maybe even a bigger x this time who knows my main issue with this well apart from the fact that it was obviously rubbish television is that it really does make val venus look a bit of an arsehole to me and i know shades of gray blending the lines blah 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 him dumping mrs yamaguchi right at the end uh, that was a dick move wasn't it 11 11 yeah um <laughs> we're just going into bonus territory now I'm really not sure that was required either, especially as the next week she just randomly turned back up with Kai and Tai again. Uh, the same Mr. Yamaguchi who gave her the paddle of shame a month before, and now they're just re-ingratiated. I really don't understand that. I'm still not absolutely sure where I stand with the Val Venus character. He's only been here for three months. Okay, this might be getting a bit meta, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, because that's what we do on this show. So Val Venus himself is a porn star, or is he a porn actor? Or is he a character in a porn film? 
The gimmick is that he is a porn actor, right? Uh, sure. Uh, you're <laughs> Just go I'm, with it. I am the only person in the world who's even considered thinking about this. I understand. So why does that why does it follow that he should just be a complete male whorebag then? It doesn't quite tie in that he should always be necessarily making the sexual innuendo and he should be just dumping women left, right and centre. Again, I'm thinking about this way too much. You know, <laughs> The moral compass of wrestling 20 years ago always points this way. But I think the fact of the matter is I didn't like him dumping Mrs. Yamaguchi at the end. This was an atrocious segment. But of course, guys, this might not be the end of this because there are plans for John Wayne Bobbitt to remarry his former squeeze, who gave him quite the squeezing five years ago, on WWF television or pay-per-view. Shall I book the both of you in for, in for that particular show as it goes forward? I can tell you right now I have plans. I don't know when it is, but I will have plans. It's just you and I, Eric. Um, sorry, you cut out there. What's that? <laughs> well played, everybody. Well played. And Lacey, I really, really hope you're happy. Sorry. Yeah, like, Sorry. That's like, number 12. <laughs> Go on, Eric. I was going to say Lacey can do the damn show by himself. <laughs> 13. Raw began with Austin calling out Vince McMahon. Patterson, Briscoe, Slaughter and McMahon came out. Austin suggested Vince was happy that he and Taker had dropped the tag titles the week before. Austin vowed to beat up Taker tonight and stuff him into a hearse along with anyone who tried to get in his way. We had a triple threat match between Ken Shamrock, Dan Seven and Owen Hart which ended when Seven put a chokehold on Shamrock but Owen kicked away at him until he tapped. Seven refused to release the hold so Steve Blackman made the save. Bart Gunn defeated the Godfather via knockout in the third round of a brawl for all contest. Gangrel defeated Brian Christopher in a quick showcase match with a DDT. We had the DOA taking on Scorpio and Farouk, which was interrupted by the cameras cutting backstage to show DX and the nation brawling. They started cutting from the ring to the back and back again constantly, which made it impossible to watch either one. DOA did a twin switch and hit a small package for the win. The DX and the Nation stopped brawling backstage to have separate entrances down to the ring to only continue their brawl in a street fight that in fact ended in a no contest without a finish. Jeff Jarrett and Southern Justice attacked DX near the end of the brawl which allowed the Nation to beat down Hunter with a ladder. Tiger Ali Singh came out, he offered $500 for someone to come and lick Babu's feet and someone came out and obliged in what was horrible television. We had Sable versus Jacqueline in an arm wrestling match. When it looked like Sable might win, Jacqueline flipped the table. She broke a trophy over Sable's back and Giant Silver carried Sable away. Bradshaw, to Bradshaw defeated Droz in our second Raw for Raw semi-final, meaning that he'll face Bart Gunn in the final next week on Raw. Dustin Runnels urged Fan to pick up a book rather than watching the rest of Raw. Val Venus took on Kai and Tai in a gauntlet match. Val defeated his first opponent in less than 90 seconds with a fisherman suplex. Funaki was next and he was pinned immediately with a power slam. Val then defeated Dick Togo with a powerbomb and a money shot. And finally he faced Taka Michinoku. Val missed an elbow drop but Taka hit a Michinoku driver for the win, handing Val his first loss in the WWF. Mrs. Yamaguchi-san came in and slapped Val and Kai and Tai beat him down. But Val fought back and sprayed everyone with a pink super soaker to chase them away. 
The Undertaker's music hit and he came out to ringside. Austin came out to confront him. Taker raised his hood and it was actually Kane. Austin and Kane brought up to the hearse and Austin threw Kane into the back seat and slammed the door. He went to get into the driver's seat but the real Undertaker was sitting there and drove away. We're all celebrating here at Podcast Towers because it's been going for five years and we still have some beer left. We still have some streamers left. Because I'm really going to start the party now. Because everybody, the brawl for all, it's only over, you know. It's only actually finished. Yay. Yes, and Bart Gunn is the winner, knocking out Bradshaw, as we said in the news, on the 24th of August in just 40 seconds. Very much a legit KO, earning him a cool and very real $75,000. Well, going forward now, as he is going to receive a legitimate push, if you were listening to our show back in June, Chris White made the very salient point that whoever goes on to win this very real tournament, are they then going to be pushed in storylines? It looks as though the answer could be yes, though I just cannot get my lips around the words Steve Austin versus Bart Gunn on pay-per-view. I, I, I'd still need a lot of convincing for that to happen. So then, Eric, the brawl for all is over. We had at least two withdrawals, at least four serious injuries. We had JR getting butt hurt, and we had Bart Gunn, our next superstar. Uh, colour me, color me cynical, if you will, but I'm not sure we really should have done all of this. You know, the good thing about wrestling is um, you get to pick the winner. Um, And I know that's like not the most original point. I think I'm probably the hundredth person to say that about the brawl for all, but you came to me first. So um, you get to pick the winner. And if they had done this, if they had worked this, I don't think they would have picked Bart Gunn. That's for sure. Cause now they're clearly trying to like catch up on a storyline to make this thing seem legitimate. And that they haven't wasted the viewers time for the past month. Um, There was actually one entertaining brawl for all match. Uh, The Godfather versus Bart Gunn. On August seventeenth, vaguely, uh, vaguely resembled uh, what a fight between two semi-professionally trained fighters might look like if they were both really tired and probably drunk. Um, the crowd was the first brawl for all match that the crowd was into, um, and so I think you know to the extent that they want to do this again, maybe they can be a little bit more conscious about who they put in and who they don't put in, and maybe make the bracket smaller or work it, uh, maybe. Um, they're stuck with Bart Gunn, who's just Mr. Anti-Charisma. I mean, he looks like a million bucks. I mean, the dude is a house. And if they could – really, I'm going to go with this here. If they could pair him with a mouthpiece or put him you know, in a gimmick, put him in a suit, make him Vince McMahon's heavy maybe, maybe that's the angle they go with. Um, and then he could be a challenger on a one-off September, October, November, December, which is the wasteland of pay-per-views. Bart Gunn versus Steve Austin – could be the headline of a December pay-per-view if they were to spend the next three months building Bart Gunn into some type of Vince McMahon, you know, hired, hired shoot fighter. They could just do what they were going to do with Steve Williams anyway. And so I don't think it's the end of the line if they do it right. I just don't think they should do it again. I should mention the Steve Williams thing as well. JR on his one line, the ultimate excuse-making non-excuse. 
Oh, Steve Williams was injured, so he wasn't going to win that match against against Bart Gunn. I'm not saying that even if he wasn't injured, he still would have won, but he was injured, so he didn't win. We won't know what would have happened if he wasn't injured. Maybe if he was 100% healthy, it might have been different. Uh, JR tying himself in knots was absolutely hilarious, and you really have got to glean from this, whatever you can. Daniel. I'm a boxing fan, and this offends me. <laughs> I don't want to see Bradshaw... Um swinging haymakers if this he's had at least 10 bottles of Budweiser and about a half a bottle of whiskey. Thank you very much. And yeah, as Eric said, the one time I actually got interested in the brawl for all was when Bart Gunn and to a lesser extent the Godfather got in the ring because you could see that they actually did either have some semblance of skill or power. You don't watch combat sports um, for two reasons. You watch it either for the artistry you know, i.e. Perna Whitaker, and then there's certainly no artistry involved with Draws versus Salvia Vega, or you watch it for people getting knocked the fuck out. And Bart Gunn is the only person in this entire tournament who has been able to provide that. I mean, the knockout he did on the Godfather, talk, not, talk about the final, but the Godfather knockout is brutal. You know, Godfather is flat on his face, lying outside the ring. It's, it's great from a combat sports fan like myself. Um, and yeah, just for me, if, if it's like, if they can create make make Bart Gunn look like, I don't know, like Dean Malenko, but with power in his fists, you know, you know, he's got no charisma, but that's actually his gimmick. He's just a street shite, you know, he's just a shooter who just beats people up. We actually had one segment where he actually knocked out Vader with one punch on Raw at some point. So I don't know, there might be something there with Bart Gunn, but to me, the <laughs> did it make up for watching? Utter dross for the last two months is the prospect of having Bart Gunn becoming a mid carder, you know, potentially behind a B pay per view with a mini IC run down the line in his future. Was it worth it? No. And the other issue that I've got, potentially from a just from a boys in the back perspective, is that you know all the all the sources for my ends suggest that this whole thing was obviously just to bring in Doctor Destiny Williams and make him a new star. And there's even rumblings that they just basically gave Steve Williams the prize money for this whole brawl for tournament as a as a just a straight payment to him before the tournament actually started, because they were so damn confident that he was just going to walk in there and brutalize everybody. They didn't think there was any point in just hold, withholding the money to whoever actually won the whole thing. They just gave it to Steve Williams in the first place. So I'm not even sure if Bart Guns managed to actually get the seventy five thousand dollars that has been promised to the winner of this show. So what sort of you know? Your talent's been hurt. Your talent's been potentially screwed over. Your morale's got to be bad because obviously this whole thing has been terribly, but terribly received um, by the public and the audiences. So just an absolute kibosh of a, of, a, of a concept completely. I hope Bart Gunn gets something out of this because if he doesn't, and if he's buried by JR on commentary or in the back, then this whole thing has been completely useless. They've got to do something with Bart Gunn now, haven't they? And again, just saying those words, I'm looking at myself. And I w- when I wake up tomorrow and look at myself in the mirror, I'm going to look back and say, yeah, when I was recording the show yesterday, I said the words, they're going to have to do something with Bart Gunn. But we are where we are. This isn't his fault. He was in that tournament. He was asked to go out there and beat people up. And he did it. Huh? He beat Bradshaw, clean, clean as a whistle, legitimately Super knockout punch within 40 seconds. Give me the 75 grand, theoretically. Thank you very much indeed. And yes, he's going to need some sort of charisma bypass very, very soon if they're going to do anything <laughs> with him. I mean, if you watch that brief segment they did with 
the Pacific Blue actress whose name I've already shamefully forgotten, Eric, on the edition of Sunday Night Heat at the start of the month. He's got some work to do. Even Bobbitt would say that performance was a bit on the wooden side. There's a bonus 14. Oh, God. So, <laughs> keep countdown. But nobody really gets over with this. If they didn't want to push Bart Gunn, they didn't want him to win. He's won it now, so they've got to do something with him. All this... <clears throat> Does if that story is true, Dan, I can well believe it. Just going to breed extra resentment in the dressing room. And not only that, these guys who, let's face it, by and large, do get on backstage. We want to know that they are all friends, really, by and large. We like a little bit of needle, but not too much. Right, it's really is potentially driving a wedge between them. You've got real-life close friends like the Godfather and Two Cold Scorpio actually trying to knock seven bells out of each other for three minutes. And I'm pleased to say that when they got backstage, there were no real hard feelings. I'm not counting that one. So... Everything was okay between them in the end, but it's a risk you don't want to take. And I'm still, at the end of the day, I just reiterate what I said on the June show. I don't know what this was meant to prove. Of all the three companies who had put on a shoot tournament, I would have WWF. Hell, I'd have them fourth on the list of three. And yet they've gone ahead and done it. And one more thing, because I think you two have made some fantastic points. I think it's very, very crucial indeed that they did finish this up on Raw and not on the pay-per-view. Undertaker and Kane came to the ring together. Vince McMahon came out and predicted that The Undertaker with Kane by his side would become the WWF Champion at the SummerSlam. Paul Bearer came out and demanded that Kane destroy The Undertaker. Taker attacked Bearer and Mankind ran out. Kane and Taker beat him down and hit him with a spike tombstone. Austin came out and acknowledged it would be a huge ask for him to retain his title at SummerSlam. Ken Shamrock vs Dan Seven ended in disqualification when Owen Hart attacked Shamrock. Steve Blackman made the save, but was attacked by Shamrock after he snapped. Mankind rolled down to the ring on the stretcher. He said that Vince was right all along and challenged Kane to a Hell in a Cell match later tonight. He vowed to throw Kane off the roof of the cage and drop him onto a thousands of thumbtacks. Mark Miro vs Kurgan ended in DQ when Miro hit a low blow. X-Pac asked the camera to follow him into the locker room where he then urinated into Jeff Jarrett's boots. The New Age Outlaws defeated Southern Justice after Billy Gunn pinned Mark Canterbury after a pile driver. Next up we had Mankind taking on Kane who was accompanied by The Undertaker in a Hell in a Cell match. Mankind tried to climb the cell but Taker yanked him down and threw a table. Kane brutally beat on Mankind down inside the cell including Kane hitting a plancher. Mankind fought back with a chair and pulled out thumbtacks before hitting a pile driver which Kane no-sold and shook off. Kane eventually hit a tombstone onto a chair and Steve Austin came out from under the ring to attack Kane for a disqualification in a Hell in a Cell match. Taker tried to fight his way into the cell to save Kane, climbing onto the roof and tearing his way through, but Vince ordered the cage be raised and up it went with the Undertaker on it. After the break we are back and we see The Undertaker and Kane in the ring together. Taker calls Austin a coward. Taker says that now this is personal and he promised that Austin would meet his destiny. China came down to the ring followed by The Rock and the rest of the nation. They surrounded her in the ring and we saw that backstage the nation had blocked DX locker room door with a forklift. The Rock told Mark Henry to kiss China but before he could, Shawn Michaels hit the ring with a chair to make the save. Val Venus vs Tucker Michinoku ended in a no contest when Hunter hit the ring and attacked them both with a chair. Hunter Triple H then vowed to make The Rock his bitch at SummerSlam. 
X-Pac to beat Gangrel via disqualification when Jeff Jarrett attacked X-Pac with a guitar, Edge ran out of the crowd to attack Gangrel after the match. In the Brawl for All tournament final, finally, Bart Gunn knocked out Bradshaw in the first round to become the winner. Druids rolled a casket down to the ring. Taker promised to beat Austin face to face on Sunday and not jump him from behind. He promised that Kane would not interfere in their match. Vince came out and demanded to know if Taker was his friend or foe. Taker offered a handshake, but he hit Vince with a chokeslam instead. Austin popped out through the casket and confronted Taker, but Kane attacked Austin as Taker watched on. Austin fought back and grabbed a chair. Instead, Taker down as we go off the air. At SummerSlam, I will take what is rightfully mine, the World Wrestling Federation title. And I'm gonna do it like a man. You see, Austin, I'm gonna be right there in your face. I'm not gonna jump you from behind. And you need not worry about my brother because Kane has his own agenda at SummerSlam. I've been up front from the beginning. SummerSlam 98, it's gonna be you, me, and the World Wrestling Federation title. But tonight, you decided to make this personal. Don't you realize, boy, when you jumped on Kane, you jumped on me. So what I would like for you to do, Stone Cold Steve Austin, is take a ride on the highway to hell tonight. Oh. oh boy, there's the challenge. Yeah, and you know the stone set on back you down see. for nothing. What I tell you guys, what I tell you. Here comes the boss. He doesn't want his he's birthday. Good. He doesn't want his birthday ruined by seeing his main event get right. beat each other to death yeah, here. Yeah, he's out here to put the big kibosh on this. And maybe he's looking for the answer, friend or foe. It's always been very friendly to me. Of course. Uh-oh. Forget Boy. about Austin. More important, Vince McMahon. Friend or foe? There it is. Pretty straightforward question. What's the answer, Undertaker? Pick up the mic and answer him. Look at... Oh! Once again, the Undertaker 
just standing by watching it happen. Undertaker saving his energy for SummerSlam, letting his brother dismantle the rattlesnake. Look out! Look Austin. He's going to get an equalizer. There you go. He's going to get an equalizer. It's going to take a little more than that, I'm afraid. I don't think Austin can get it done Sunday on pay-per-view. How in the hell does one man, even a Steve Austin, turn back the challenge of these two monsters? One more topic before we begin on SummerSlam, and that is the unfolding and still as yet unresolved story between Kane and The Undertaker, whether or not they are in cahoots. Lots and lots taking place here. I do recommend you listen to the TV reports very close that we've given you throughout this show because there's a lot to unpack and they go back and watch a lot of it too. So, Dana, we'll come to you first on this one. The thing I really like about this is that they now have united The Undertaker and Kane, at least at time of recording and at SummerSlam, which we'll get to again in a second. But they've united the two of them, but they've also managed to keep Undertaker babyface. They haven't really turned Kane face. These are people who've been trying to kill each other a few months ago, and yet I entirely buy that they are now together. What do you think? Yeah, it's been excellent. Um, it's just been the right balancing act between mystery and believability. There's not there's not any drastic character shifts by both men. You know, you can buy the fact that Undertaker just wants to reunite with his brother. Um, and Kane has just been kind of, you know, he's been a long lost brother. He's back and he maybe just wants to listen to his brother rather than his dad for a change. Um, and yeah, it's been done slowly. So it's not the reveal, I think, on the last Raw before SummerSlam was good that it wasn't, we got the answer, but it wasn't a, oh crap, Undertaker's now fully heel. Um, because they built that entire match on it being babyface versus babyface. And it would have been a little bit of a, I don't know, too much of a slap in the face to kind of go from that to being Undertaker's a full-blown heel one week before, you know, one of the biggest pay-per-views the company have had for two years. And yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed almost all the segments um, on Raw, particularly, you know, the Kane pinning Undertaker to win the tag team titles, when Undertaker basically sitting up straight away and looking at it, okay, got that done then, didn't we? And yeah, I just think it's been great. It's been one of the best, you know, Talk about wrestling versus soap opera and sports entertainment. This has been a proper wrestling storyline, and it's been the best thing on the entire show for the last month. So take that with what you will, based on what we talked about earlier in the show. We've managed to pull the diamond out of the rough on this one. Eric, on this show, I am always the number one advocate of clear delineations between baby faces and heels. Here is an exception that proves the rule, I think. It's been great, hasn't it? Respectfully disagree, gentlemen. Ooh. Oh, the floor is yours, Mr. Lamstrom. I don't have like deep and salient thoughts about this, and I think the reason is is because I don't think even the WWF knows where the hell this is going. And so, one week Undertaker's that. Let me go through my show notes here because I want to make sure I get these in order. Because to me, the the final segment of all the Raws this month kind of all blended together, and that that wasn't good in my opinion because it felt like nothing was being done, and so. You know, first Raw of the month, Kane and Undertaker attack Mankind, and then there's just a big Pier 6. And so Mankind's kind of lost in the shuffle here as well. And so you have the implication that Kane and Undertaker are together. 
But then Kane pins Undertaker the next week, and Undertaker pops up. And, like, I don't care if it's for a greater good. I don't want to see the Undertaker, who's the most mysterious kind of supernatural character in wrestling history, get pinned after a fucking chokeslam. I don't even care if it's for storyline. I don't want to see that on my television because I think it takes the piss out of Undertaker, even if it's headed towards some long-term thing. If they had done that and then turned Undertaker heel, either the Raw before or at SummerSlam, okay, fine. But they didn't. And so we're left, you know, at the time of recording at this, um, you know, really un- uh, uncertain area where Undertaker has taken two clean pinfall losses in a month. And I don't remember a month where Undertaker has ever taken, you know, two clean pinfall losses on television before. And so I think this this is kind of eroding the Undertaker's character as much as it might be developing his and Kane's. I think there's a place for the Undertaker as just a vicious, nasty heel. And I kind of I kind of disagree with you, Dan. I kind of wish they just pulled the trigger on it because I think having like a vicious, nasty, you know, satanic Undertaker, you know, with Kane versus Austin at SummerSlam. I mean, that's stacking the deck, Hulkamania, Heenan stable levels of of heat where not only does Austin have to overcome the evil dastardly undertaker, but he has to overcome the evil dastardly Kane. And maybe that gives an opportunity for mankind to help, or maybe that gives an opportunity for somebody else to develop and come in and help Austin and start to build another baby face. I felt the heel face face heel, you know, whose side is undertaker on who, you know, where's Paul bear and all this, you know, what's Kane up to. Um, I, I kind of just, it kind of lost me, and I felt like it caused their match at SummerSlam, Undertaker and Austin, to not have as much uh, heat and drama going into it because it was still, at the end of the day, two baby faces. And, you know, I, it's clear that we're moving towards something bigger after SummerSlam, but like WrestleMania, I don't want SummerSlam or really any major show to end in a way that furthers the storyline for the October pay-per-view or for the September pay-per-view. I think, you know, SummerSlam is one of those shows where you need to have some like definitive end. And so Austin going over a heel undertaker or God forbid, a heel undertaker going over Austin because he had Kane. That's some, that's definition right there. And that gives us some direction, but I don't think the WWE has that in the main event picture, you know, at the close of SummerSlam. So, you know, I appreciate what you guys have said, but I respectfully disagree. Okay, Dan, you're Kane. I'm the Undertaker. Eric is mankind. Let's get him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm actually with you on a lot of those points. Uh, Interesting, even though I disagree with them. One thing I will come back to you on, which you kind of touched on, which probably the one black mark against this for me, was Austin perhaps a little isolated during all of this? He He felt it to me at times, I've got to say. I, I I fully agree with you there. And I think Austin, you know, because there's so much kind of uh, depth or lack of depth, or I just will say confusion with this Undertaker Kane storyline that also mixes in Mankind and Paul Bearer with Vince McMahon and all of, all of that, you know, there's only so much room for Austin, even if he is kind of this nuclear force, he can only have so much screen time. And his character has completely stalled uh, basically since the Dude Love feud ended. Yeah, you've got him going, you know, for about seven weeks, going to take a, whose side are you on? Are you with Kane? Are you going to be a fair man? Are you going to get your brother to help me? And then, you know, that's the seven weeks of questioning. And then it finally gets revealed that Taker and Kane are together. And he comes out and says, I knew all along you were together. No, you bloody didn't. <laughs> so, you know, that's a bit weak. And I, yeah, I will agree with you that Austin was, 
it's strange because he's the most popular wrestler in the world and he did feel like a third wheel in his whole build. It's probably a shame that as much as I still think this Undertaker Kane thing has been excellent, it came at the time it did when they were building towards a huge face-v-face match at the second biggest show of the year. And as I think we all agree, Austin felt a little pushed to the sidelines. And if there's one person who should not be in that particular role, it's him. And I thought Vince McMahon's role in all of this this month has been fascinating. He's almost just played the narrator. He hasn't really got involved. He only makes one appearance on the pay-per-view as well. But I do think he was needed when he did the whole friend or foe thing on the final Raw before the pay-per-view. And he did take the choke slam from The Undertaker. I think that was needed to make absolutely sure and erase any doubt in anybody's mind that Undertaker was still going into this one as a face. So, all the TV is done. For the entire remainder of the show, we're going to talk about SummerSlam 1998. The high, ah, you know it. Eric, kick us off with the results for SummerSlam 1998, if you would, please. Sure. In the opening match, uh, D'Lo Brown retained the European Championship, uh, defeating Val Venus by disqualification. Um, the Oddities defeated Kai and Tai in a match I never want to talk about again. Uh, X-Pac uh, defeated uh, Jeff Jarrett with the help of, God, Howard Finkel. Um in a hair versus hair match. Yes, you heard that right. Um, uh, Sable and mystery partner, spoiler alert, Edge uh, defeated Jacqueline and Mark Merrow. Um, in a Lion's Den match, Ken Shamrock defeated Owen Hart. Um, the New Age Outlaws defeated Mankind and only Mankind uh, in a no disqualification match to win the tag team titles. Um, Triple H defeated The Rock in a ladder match to capture the Intercontinental Championship. And in our long-hyped main event, Stone Cold Steve Austin defeated The Undertaker to retain the WWF title. So, Dan, this was hyped like a big show. It felt like a big show. Was it a good show? Yes. It's the best SummerSlam that's been held in North America. Um, just, no, I don't think there was anything that was levels of Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon. Intent, but whatever can you was, mean? <laughs> yeah, it was still a very good all round show. Um, and it the big the main event felt big and it delivered, so yeah, good show, Eric. I don't think this is the best SummerSlam that's happened in the last since last August. Um, I, I, I think the show was fine, um, but I think the hype up for the show and I think kind of the feedback that it's been getting in the just short time since it aired. Uh, I didn't really, I feel like it was kind of an up and down show that had one spectacular match, one match that completely failed to live up to the endless hype that it was given. And then a lot of stuff that was just kind of all over the place throughout the card. And one thing that should never have ever come close to being uh, featured on something that I paid money for. Um, And so all things considered, I think this is a card that's going to be remembered for one or two matches, but overall, I don't think it lived up to the hype. Dan, we were aligned for five minutes and already I've turned on you and sided with Landstrom. <laughs> Shades of grey, baby. Me and Eric have been on a good number of shows together and I don't think we've ever agreed on a single show. That's why I put you on. You've, <laughs> you've, got, to, you've got to have that needle. No needle. Yeah, it's have, just, it's have, just weird. I have, I have already booked you for the review show in, in December. It's going to happen. That's going to be a riot. I'm particularly looking forward to you espousing the virtues once again, Dan, of in your house, no way out of Texas. <laughs> I still wake up in cold sweats about that particular review, but never mind. SummerSlam 1998. Even though I'm close to Eric, I still thought this was a fine show, but it was a very frustrating one. 
in that they almost got there. This should have been their best show of the year. I think it was probably just about their second best. I don't think it was the best pay-per-view of the month in all three organisations. Hint, hint, listen to volume two. Did they set the bar too high? Are they capable with the roster they've got of reaching those lofty, lofty, lofty perches? I'm not sure that they did. And I've got to be honest, apart from one example towards the end, I don't really think they threatened to. But as is our won't on this show, we'll take you through match by match and we'll see where we end up at the end. So, August the 30th, 1998. This is the number one song in the UK right now. We get a magnificent video package, sadly not a soundtrack by If If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next by Manic Street Preachers, which manages to both illustrate Austin's plight and what an unstoppable force Undertaker and Kane are. And all of this without even a simple voiceover other than commentary clips or Vince himself. That is how strong they are right now at building stories when they want to. We are indeed in MSG. We get a brilliant shot of the entranceway. It's the classic door, you know the one, but it's got a gateway in front of it with red lighting behind it. I think that needs to represent hell or something. Seriously, fantastic. And unlike on the Raw in September last year, we got to see the classic entranceway. That's why we do events at MSG. And here we are in our opening match, or at least we will be after Val tells us he came, he saw, and he came again. That's Val, not me, so I'm not adding that one to the count. <laughs> he faces D'Lo Brown, who today hails from Helsinki. So our opening match is D'Lo Brown defending his European title against Val Venus. D'Lo sucks chance to get us going through the opening tie-up exchanges. He then even offers a handshake, which Val gingerly slaps. A couple of slow collar and elbows end up in the ropes, so you can already tell they've got a bit of time to play with here. Val goes for a standing elbow, but D'Lo's chest protector only hurts our actor chomp. Brown with a corner charge, but misses the second, and Val in with some basic but effective offense, including a nice dropkick in MSG. Take that, Jim Brunzel. Crowd are tepid as D'Lo holds onto the ropes to prevent a roll-up, but a Val Spinebuster gets a reaction and a two-count. Edge is in the audience, who JR calls a very strange enigma. Venus misses a splash, which JR questions would be effective anyway, which is a cool call, and D'Lo with a neat side suplex. Irish whips to the buckle, and Val hits for deck. Here's the king trying to join our count. I think he's trying to soften Val up. Val recovers with a T-bone suplex, not called by the commentators, but D'Lo is in with a big slam and a leg drop for two, followed by a spin kick for the same result. V's back gives out on a slam, and D'Lo then executes an elbow off the second rope for a two count. V blocks a suplex, but then D'Lo gives us a Texas Cloverleaf. That gets an ah, I gotcha pop from many in attendance. D'Lo though misses a senton, and Val can recover a bit. He then goes up for a thing, but D'Lo catches him into the sit-out powerbomb in a spot that looked far too contrived for my liking. Two count there as the crowd finally starts to rally Val a bit. Stiff DDT from D'Lo gets two, I'm not counting that, and at last the fans are around for this one. He goes up again, but this time Venus catches him into a power slam for two. Butterfly suplex in a, sam- 
excuse me, butterfly suplex and a slam set up the money shot, but Brown is able to get the knees up on that one. A noticeable D'Lo chant goes up now, but then a D'Lo sucks one follows. In an odd spot, D'Lo sort of gets Val up for a powerbomb, but he just lets him down gently. He then actually hits a running powerbomb on the second try. That prepares us for the lowdown, but that misses as well. They slug it out on the knees, but Val is able to fight up first, and then he tears off the chest protector. Power slam by Venus, who then puts on the protector himself. Well, some film studios do actually insist on that sort of thing. Good lord. Corderas accidentally bashes into him when he's set for the money shot. A frustrated Val then shoves him down, and that leads to a cheap-ass DQ. But as Mr. Perfect said in this very building four years ago, you don't put your hands on an official. Val responds by duffing up the ref and giving him the costly money shot instead. Eric. Yeah, first things first, D'Lo is a charisma machine. We say it every month, but, man, he had the MSG uh, crowd uh, with him at certain points. When I say with him, I don't mean they were just cheering for him. I, I'm saying they were invested in his character. Um, and I think you can't you can't really teach that. And so, if you know, he's still kind of a sloppy worker, and he and Val both um, missed some spots in this match, so I'll get into in more detail but to the extent that you need somebody who can get a crowd going have some charisma and kind of be taught the finer points between the ropes i'd rather start there than somebody that didn't have any charisma at all like dan severn or somebody like or bart gun so um i think it's clear that delo is headed for for fine places and i would not be surprised if within a year's time he's holding down that intercontinental title um level in the company i think he's got a bright future ahead of him really young guy um, and he's in great shape compared to when he first came in, too. So he's clearly motivated. This is a match of two halves. The first half of this match, I had I said that it was slow, but it wasn't poorly paced. It was a well-worked, simple match, you know, square within that WWF style. They didn't take many risks. They didn't do much, but wrestle a nice back-and-forth, heel-face dynamic match. And then the dang thing, unfortunately, for these two guys who both worked pretty hard, just kind of fell apart in the second half. You mentioned the botched powerbomb spot that they just kind of repeated. Never repeat the spot. Um, the finish was worthless. The face attacked the ref and was somehow still the face afterwards. You know, this match was 15 minutes long. If they could have made it 10 minutes, clean up the finish. You don't want two young guys in here having some sort of contrived WCW finish, and that's what this was. You know, you have two young guys in here. You need to protect them, and you need to protect them with the layout of the match. You need to protect them with psychology, and they didn't do that here. The finish landed like a lead balloon. Cut five minutes off, clean up the finish, and this would have been a really solid match for what it was. It was okay. It had some potential, but it, it definitely fizzled before it became anything of note. Yeah, 15 minutes was definitely too long for this sort of finish. Dan, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think this was... I don't know if this is, an indi- this is probably an indictment on the standard of opening matches that WWF have put on the pay-per-views recently, but this is one of the best opening matches I can actually think of um, since 1996. Just again, that's probably more of an indictment on the quality of the opening matches. But this is just did what an opening matches should do in terms of getting a crowd invested in the in the in the show with really a quite a decent pace, good moves, you know, interesting moves, you know, Texas Cloverleaf and T Bone Suplexes, etc. Um, and yeah, I will totally agree on the botch and the finish really driving this match down. But it was still good. I would still say it was definitely good from um, Helsinki's finest, Steve O'Brown, and and Val Venus, who, you know, 
his character and his storylines are a bit questionable to say the least, but he's a good wrestler. He's a really good seller. Like his selling for DDTs and the back was great. You know, a really good stuff here. Um, and I do think that if he could, you know, get a bit more serious gimmick, he could actually be that intercontinental level kind of guy um, that, that Eric's talking about. And so, yeah, I, I think this was a really um, good showing, but maybe not necessarily executed as well as they would have hoped. Yeah, it was a bit on the sloppy side, but that powerbomb spot was unforgivable. As we always say on the show, never repeat the spot, as Eric has rightly illustrated. But I'm going to give them pretty much a pass on that. I don't think they were expected to be given 15 minutes. I'm not even entirely sure that they were expected to be on the show necessarily, but they were. They got to kick it off. Second biggest show of the year in MSG. And I think, by and large, they acquitted themselves fairly well. Both these guys are very good in the ring. I think D'Lo is a sleeper for Rising Star this year, actually. I've been so impressed everything he does. And he's clearly got the charisma. He's got the chops in the ring. I'd like to see him get a chance to really cut some decent lengths promos. I think he's capable of doing it. And Val, not a great character, as we said, but a, a fine worker, picked up from the Indies at just the right time. He's not the finished article in the ring yet, but he's definitely getting there. And I really would be interested to see where these guys are in about a year's time, if they are at the IC level, maybe even slightly higher. I think if you put the two of them together, I think we could get a decent feud here because this match went up with pretty much no build. Obviously, they've been feuding in different areas, D'Lo as part of the Nation DX thing, and Val, of course, with our friends in Kayantai. So you could say that perhaps they weren't really familiar with each other. I don't think they've really been facing each other on house shows either. But I thought they did well. As I said earlier, 15 minutes, that's far too long for a cheap DQ finish, especially one where the face looks like a bit of a dick again at the end. But I'm not going to dock them. Yeah, well, I think it's about 17 or 18 now. I'm not going to dock them too much for that. They were really trying out there. They were given 15 minutes in MSG at SummerSlam. And I think we can... It's maybe not really Brainbusters Heart Foundation level 89, but uh, if you look at some of the other SummerSlam openers we've had in the past, this one is definitely nearer the top than the bottom. So well played, lads. You did probably the best you could, but that was a terrible finish. Yeah, go Haku- Hakushi versus the one, two, three kid. Is yeah, that was yeah that, that was excellent. That was a good one in '95. Yeah, '95. Well, even last, even last year's cage match. Yeah, oh, that God. was fun. Yeah, I, right. you know, I completely forgot about that. Okay, guys, you're going before you fall down the list any further. Let's move on. <laughs> We go backstage to see a destroyed hearse as carried out by Austin on Sunday Night Heat. Mankind isn't particularly pleased with this, and he stalks around a bit with a sledgehammer. <sighs> Yet more Chris Lacey. He's all over this show. The insane clown posse wrapped the oddities down to the ring for our four-on-three tag match. They all tried to dance, and God, is it fucking gustling. So, so, so then, it's the oddities. Golga, Kurgan, and Giant Silver against poor old Kai and Tai. Oh, man. Attacker and Golga start off. Big John slams his own head into the buckles to show that that won't work, and he just slaps down all of the heels. JR very unconvincingly informs us he kind of likes Insane Clown Posse, as if he has been asked about them after two minutes of a first date. Kai and Tai regroup whilst Golga hits Yamagushi with a shoe. Who uses a shoe? <laughs> it's not February 1996 anymore. Then Kurgan goes after Funaki and nails him with the one move he can do, that sort of sidewalk slam type thing. Then he sees off all of Kai and Tai. Are you getting the picture here? He then pulls Yamaguchi away as this one is going nowhere fast. The giant is in and nobody wants to face him. I can't say I blame them as these guys have reputations to uphold. Poor old Togo is left to try to get something out of this hump and he at least bumps for his, I guess you could call it a shove. 
The car entire family tree climb high, but they too can't knock him off his feet. He dumps all four of them into a corner, and then we get the Andre butt bump. They bail, but then Taka has to take a gorilla press slam from this talentless goon. Thankfully, Kai and Tai catch him on the outside. It's back to Golga and Togo in the ring, and that power slam from the masked man sure looks familiar. Mm-hmm. Funaki and Teo then give him a double slam, and it's M Pro City with multiple splashes from the top, and then four way sliding elbows, and an assisted dropkick by Tucker. They then all Iris whip him, but Golga hits them down with a four way clothesline. Kurgan in with punches as less than nobody cares. Luna stops Yamaguchi from interfering, then Kurgan and Selba chokeslam two each. Golga then pins all four of them because they are little guys, right? And that's what happens to little guys in MSG. Eric, I'm going to let you stew on this one for a while while Dan picks up the slack. It's a travesty. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Poor Takamichi. What's Takamichi Noku done to deserve this? I mean, really? He's one of the best wrestlers in the world and he's having to do this. I feel so sorry for the bloke. Like, this is what, like watching a stand-up comedian bomb. You know, this is meant to be the comedy match with, you know, fun antics with the oddities and the insane clown posse getting the crowd up and this is. And I can't be the only one to think that the crowd was rather muted with the insane clown posse's attempts to go, say, yeah, you know, no, we're, we're all right. Thanks, mate. And the, no one laughed with the shoe joke. No one's really laughing with Kurgan's dancing. It was awful. Just, it's just, it's just a terrible act. And how dare... JR compare Andre the Giant to Giant Silver. That's an absolute slanderous statement. 93 um, Andre, maybe. <laughs> just yes. awful. This, is, this, this was the real like major low point in the show. The oddities are nothing, and it just made me feel really sad that we're not getting Takamich Noko and Dick Togo tearing it up in 15-minute Cruiserweight Classics. It's close to the low point of this whole podcast, um, this entire project. Uh, Eric, bring it home, man. Everything on Raw was pointing to this being Taka versus Val. Yep. They had Hell a yeah. match on Raw. They had a, Val ran the gauntlet through Kai and Tai, and then Taka beat him. And it was a, they had a good exchange. And Welling, you said it right. Val's a good worker inside the ring. He knows where to be. He knows how to sell. And he and Taka had a good match on Raw, and this should have been their ten-minute spot, and this should have been the blow-off to Taka versus, or to to Val versus Kai and Tai. Uh, instead, we got Val versus D'Lo in a match that had no build, and we got Taka Michinoku wasted against the Oddities. A couple of thoughts here: if you listen to our ECW volume this month, maybe it was last month, but one of the two, I said, you know, a couple folks mentioned, oh yeah, you got to bring in Hayabusa and Hakushi into the Fed, and I said, keep them far away from Yamaguchi-san as possible. And this is why, because you've got a guy that's equally as talented, who's also Japanese, in Takamichi Noku, Dick Togo, and, and um, Funaki, uh, Menstea, yeah, um, are, are, uh, are also good workers too. I'm just less familiar with them, frankly. But you look at Taka, and he's, one, like Dan said, he's one of the best workers in the world, uh, at least for his size, and he's being wasted in this. Can you imagine putting a team together and saying, well, we've got this giant Silva and we've got Kurgan. How oh, we need a worker. Tenta. What's Tenta up to? <laughs> if John Tenta in 1998 is the workhorse of your tag team and watch this match all 10 minutes of it. Yes, 10 minutes of it. John Tenta worked the majority of this match. Um, and he was basically the the 
the Ricky Morton of this of this team. <laughs> and it's it's just travesty with a capital T. It's exactly the way to do it. Get this off my screen. He's not a fish. He's Ricky Morton. Okay. That's going to be the tagline for this whole podcast going forward. Yeah, this was a complete and utter abomination. I don't need to tell anybody that. But it's such a waste of Tucker in particular because he was brought in just over a year ago as that very rare breed in the WWF. He came into the company as a work-rate guy. And that is how he was able to get himself over to a crowd who were completely unfamiliar with him. He had an excellent match with Sorsuke at Canadian Stampede. He was tearing it up on TV against everyone they put him in with. They brought in, they brought in Yoshihiro Tajiri. They had some great five-minute matches on Raw. He got some good stuff out of Christopher. Had the match with Aguila, uh, Pantera, all those sort of guys. Now, you've got talent here. So, and because he's A, little, and B, Japanese, they senselessly turn him heel because, what, Mrs. Yamaguchi is his sister? Yeah, okay then. And he is there with the other three little guys, just to be squashed by two of the worst workers I hope I ever see and somebody who hasn't really meant a whole lot since maybe just after SummerSlam 90. Let's let, let's be charitable, say maybe 92. SummerSlam 90 was the high point for our boy John Tenter. But Vince got his jollies out of this one. You can see him backstage going, ha, ha, ha. Look at those. He's little gifted. Knocked them all down, pal. Ha, 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 ha. He doesn't care how good at least three of Kai and Tai are. And I'm sure even Funaki could be a decent worker too if he had the chance to show it. But this was the ultimate low point of this entire project because it's up or down there with this entire project, certainly this particular pay-per-view, because this is... You can Vince McMahon can say he's changed as much as he likes. He can say the product is moving with the times. He says he doesn't want to insult our intelligence anymore. But then he pre- presents this on a SummerSlam pay-per-view in Madison Square Garden. And they did not care at all. You are not going to get smart fans to be bothered about a thing like this. Yet you still put it on. The two aren't even feuding with each other, for God's sake. It just makes no sense on any level. It's just yet another one for anybody who wants to take on the experiment of psychoanalyzing Vince McMahon. I'm not expecting a very big line of contenders for that one. Okay, let's move on while we still can. Hair match, Double J versus x Pack. Yeah, it gets better. You guys like this show? <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder. I'm beginning to wonder. We see footage from Heat of Jarrett and Southern Justice cutting Howard Finkel's hair. Only a few seconds of this are shown, but maybe that's because Howard didn't have much hair any... Oh, you already had me on that joke. Slaughter sees off Justice, and then x Pack emerges with the Fink, and he has two words for them. Now, do I ask Eric to do those two words in the Howard Finkel voice that I know he can do? He doesn't say it like that, though. That's the thing. Yeah, he didn't really sound like... I was hoping he'd really sound like Finkel, but he was trying too hard not to, wasn't he? He sounded like heel. He sounded like heel Howard Finkel. Suckers! I have one Howard Finkel, so that's what you get. (laughs) Let's get to the play-by-play. 3 2 1. Jarrett in with shots to the back, and X Pack is wise to them. Excellent spinning heel kick, and then a clothesline sees Jarrett off. The super springboard body pressed to the outside by Waterman, and this is why he works face these days. Two drop kicks by Jarrett, and then X Pack is outside as well. He sets up for an atomic drop, but instead drives Pack balls first into the ring post. Good God. Jarrett jaws with the ref as only he can, that is not a compliment, and then a big whip to the turnbuckle. Power slam secures a two count. 
corner clotheslines, but then X-Pac is in with a lovely Tornado DDT. The crowd bite with a let's go X-Pac chant as we get a two and a half count. Jarrett up with a sleeper, and hearing Finkel give his support on the outside is really, really weird, but in an endearing sort of kind of way. Sleeper won't get it done, and indeed Pack is able to counter into his own. He gets put up on the top rope, but he can fend him off in order to hit a twisting crossbody. But Jarrett sees that coming, which also leads to a two count. X-Pac goes for another spin kick, but Jarrett ducks. Lots of counters here, and I like it. JJ calls for the figure of four to cricket, and he does actually get it on. X-Pac tries to turn it over, but he can't, which is a spot we really should see more often. And he almost gets pinned twice until he eventually reaches the ropes. Jarrett tries again, but Pac kicks him off and pulls off a desperation side suplex as we get our double down. Both men are up, then Pac hits the kick, followed by a little bronco busting. Jarrett with a crossbody off the top, but Pac rolls through for a two. JJ then goes for a Rana, which is turned into a powerbomb, also for two. Jeff catches him off the ropes as we exchange another, exchange another couple of two counts. Then he blocks another buster with a low blow. Finkel doesn't like that and he gets on the apron, but only meets with a slug from Jarrett. Pack then pulls off from the X-Factor, but after a delayed cover, a two count is the result. Southern Justice re-emerge, but Knight's attempt to hit X-Pack with the guitar is unsuccessful. X-Pack grabs it himself, gives Jeff the Ulka bong, and that will do it for the three. The Outlaws quickly run down to prevent any funny business, then they, the Headbangers and Draws, are on hand to make sure Jarrett cannot escape. They hack into his locks with common or garden shears, and everybody seems really quite happy with life. So too does Method Man in the audience, as JR tries to sound like somebody who knew who the Wu-Tang Clan were five seconds ago. Eric? Uh, we're not big into transitions, are we? Um... So this match was about the time where I started thinking that I should just put Heatwave on again. Um, watch that show if you haven't. It's fabulous. Um, what? Jeff Jarrett, it's like a running joke at this point. Like, I get it. And they're trying – okay. They're trying to move him along. He's dumped uh, Colonel Parker, Tennessee Lee. He's with Southern Justice, and they're kind of cool. I mean, that's a that's a – reasonable kind of level up for the hog farmers from bitters arkansas to be kind of badass southern you know hired guns i can buy into that as long as they're more heavies and not necessarily wrestling 15 minute matches against the quebecers now i would have much rather have seen delo versus x-pac and taka versus val and Jarrett versus nobody um on this card um <laughs> but for, for for what this was and for it was a well-worked match x-pac is a super underrated worker and i think he's routinely underrated and he has been since like even like 94 um as how good he is in the ring when he's healthy and that's been his big thing he hasn't really been able to string together a couple years of health even though he's a pretty young guy um so this match was well worked, but the gimmick ruined it. Howard Finkel being involved in any way is another one of those kind of like, do we really need this? Can't Howard Finkel just be Howard Finkel, especially in MSG? I know I was reading some you know, preliminary reviews and reports and kind of talking to some of y'all about this match. And you know, it was like, oh, well, it's kind of cool that Howard Finkel, he's so beloved in MSG that they could give him a bigger role. But Howard Finkel is Howard Finkel. He doesn't need a bigger role. He should just be announcing the matches, right? And so, again, we're trying too hard here to kind of move things along into this contemporary sphere. But all that is taking place in the context of a hair match, which is just like 1978. And so th there was no balance here. There was very little built to this match that I remembered as far as, you know, 
oh, we need a hair match. That's usually the blow off to a long feud. And then Jeff Jarrett got a haircut. He didn't get his head shaved. And so good match. The gimmick was bad. I don't like to see Howard Finkel involved like this. Howard Finkel should just be calling, you know, you know, height, weight and location. And just Jeff Jarrett, can you just do something else, please? Well, Dan, we're getting Jeff Jarrett push number 54 out of this. And spoiler alert is going to file. So straight on to the match. <laughs> well, I think the answer to your question of why was there a hair versus hair match is that Jeff Jarrett needs a bit of a look change. Uh, so let's just give him a haircut and move on. And look, I, I think the whole thing is that you, yours is that it was a good match. And that was, you know, that's the basic principle. It was a good match. And it, I it really was. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good match between two very, you know, Jeff Jarrett's a steady hand. That's that's pretty much what he is. And again, as you said, Sean Walkman, X Park is he's not quite a level of elite like Guerrero or Owen Hart or Benoit, but he's still bloody good. Um, you know, and those cross bodies, those spin kicks are just so they just make they just so much pack so much punch to them. And yeah, it was just a really good I just thought it was a good, really well worked match. And I didn't mind Howard Finkel being involved in it, and I didn't mind the you know, Seven Just has been involved in it. So I didn't really have as much issues with the whole gimmick and, you know, how it think all that. So I probably took more away from this match than you did, Eric. And that's that's just my personal preference. The only thing that did, you know, take it down a peg for me again was the ending. And that's that's three times now of three. The endings had a little bit of question marks about it. Okay. The Clippers didn't work. And that's, you know, the hair versus hair match needs to have that kind of, yeah, moment when the big nasty heel gets his hair shipped off. And, when you're trying desperately to get some pair of electric clippers to work to cut this guy's hair off, which is clearly too long to be used with clippers, there is a bit of faffing around there and it loses that, that wow factor. And as you said, it, Jeff Jarrett isn't bald. He's just had a bit of a haircut off. So I don't know whether, you know, if these two guys just came out and does a good match, that was that's fine. But if the whole point of this was to give Jeff Jarrett a haircut, then... You know, you could have done that outside the ring. Really, didn't need to have a big SummerSlam match for it. But uh, no, we'll, we'll see if Jeff Jarrett goes. I've actually kind of enjoyed this new attitude change that he's had. It's a little bit more seriously. Don't piss me off, guitar, which is something, I guess, rather than him, you know, strutting with that awful, you know, shades and the sunglasses and the spacesuit. So we'll see how it goes. But two dependable workers who seem to be both on an upward trajectory, I will give it a tentative thumbs up. Well, I for one was hoping we were going to see the Colonel again here, but it looks like he is now 100% gone, I'm sad to say. Grumpy, sad Rory is here to stay until the Colonel makes his return. Southern Justice are not a good replacement for him or anybody. This match was okay to good, I thought. X-Pac showed a lot of fire. I say he needs to be a face. His offense suits babyfaced him. He's annoying as a heel. Uh, I don't think that suits his in-ring character, so if there are there if there is truth in the rumor of the DX split, which hasn't completely gone away at the end of this month, then he needs to be on the babyface side of that particular ledger. Jarrett was Jarrett, as he will always be. He held up his end in the ring. He did no more than that. But in fairness, he did no less either. Interference finish. I was expecting it. Yes, Dan, it, I'm not going to pretend I liked it. I didn't, but I think we all saw that it was going to come. Now, now Jarrett has got this guitar. It's been used in every single match he's had this month. So I suppose it had to be used against him here to give the face his big win. Uh, I'm close to Eric on this one. Howard Finkel, you couldn't really call him a sympathetic figure, could you? He's just part of the WWF fabric. He's 
he's the ropes, he's the turnbuckle, he's the ring. You expect yeah. you expect him to be there. You miss him when he's not there. Tony Chimmel can't lace his boots, but he doesn't need to be a character for goodness sake. And he doesn't need to be a character in front of an MSG crowd. They love seeing him do the announcing. They don't want to cheer for the guy. And when somebody who doesn't have much hair anyway is already having his hair cut, that's not the way to build heat on anybody. So this was just throwing somebody in there for the sake of throwing somebody in there. And I don't think Finkel acquitted himself well. Acquitted himself well. Again, he was trying, as I said in the in the blurb, it was kind of endearing him seeing doing the babyface interference thing on the apron, but I never want to see it again. And I, could you really buy him being a member of DX? Let's move on. We're not surprised if Vince wants him to be the ringleader, so we'll leave that one hanging in the air. And they completely botched the ending. This was an even worse attempting at haircutting than Messrs. Piper and Beefcake achieved at WrestleMania 3. The Clippers did not work. I do think that Jarrett actually came into it with slightly shorter hair anyway. So maybe he was anticipating them being being a bit of a screw-up. I think he had four locks taken off him in the end. And also one more thing. Hair versus hair is absolutely right out of 1978. And is having your hair shaved really the ultimate humiliation these days? Because last time I checked, the biggest star in the business was as bold as a plucked chicken. So if you're going to look a bit like him, <laughs> is it really ultimate humiliation? I'm not so sure it is. Yeah, right results here. They're going to try something else with Jarrett. And I, for one, cannot wait. Oh. I think it's break time, don't you, boys? <laughs> Oh, yeah, we got to get into the good part of the show. So, yeah. <laughs> According to you, there isn't a good part of the show. Well, but I think there's one or two. Maybe Ken Shamrock's best match coming up soon. So. Not, yeah. not, not too long to go. So, we say 10 minutes? Perfect. Cool. Fantastic. Cool. We get a brief shot of the Lions Den with Doc. More on that shortly. As then Michael Cole grabs a word with The Rock. We see Rocky injuring Triple H's knee with a belt shot on Heat earlier. He then asks a very reasonable question about how he can climb a ladder to win a match on one leg. The Rock is the people's champ and the people's choice. Now back to the jabronis at ringside. I love that, man. So the mixed tag match. Jacqueline and Mark Mero against Sable and mystery partner. Sable comes to the ring by herself, which didn't go all that well last time. Over a muffled house mic, she is not able to announce her partner, and it's Edge. So he and Mero kick us off. Mark starts with some strikes, but Edge them with a head scissors and some fine arm drags. Mero tags out, but this is not an intergender match, so he gets Sable and Jackie. Or we would if the latter had not quickly tagged out herself. So it's back to the men as Edge hits a flapjack. Jackie grabs his foot, which allows Mero to assume the initiative. As Jackie comes back with a right hand as the rep is tied up. Mero goes for the TKO, but Edge is able to counter into a DDT. The women are back in, and the crowd come alive for Sable taking Jackie down. The hair pull Beal makes its usual appearance, and Sable even gives Mero a shot. She then knees him in the balls and goes for the Sable bomb. Jackie breaks that up, though, but she pays with a TKO. Again, that does not look particularly safe, Sable. Mero pulls off the cover as Edge remonstrates with the ref. The heels do some double teaming until Jackie accidentally slugs Mero with a Vader attack. Edge gets the tag, and then what JR calls a suicide leap over the top rope to Mero. Okay, that was extremely impressive. Jackie dives onto Edge, but she is then treated to a trip to the woodshed as a result. Is that a bit out of character for Edge? More on that in a second. Then a body press by the tortured soul back in the ring scores too. A rope-assisted neckbreaker is next, but Jackie puts Mero's feet on the ropes. She then gets bumped off a charge, allowing Edge to get another close too. 
Samoan drop by the marvelous one as he then staggers up to the top rope only to receive a crotching. Sable is tagged in and she, Rana's Mero, off the top. Oh, yes, indeedy. She goes for the pin and is then able to move when Jackie tries to break it up. Jackie accidentally head- headbutts her man in the balls, bad day to be Mero, which allows Edge to hit a downward spiral, followed by an assisted wheelbarrow splash from Sable to pin Mero for the one, two, three. Dan, this felt for me the pared down version of the mixed tag we got at WrestleMania, and I think it suffered as a result. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was weird because I think on, I actually think the in-ring action was better than the WrestleMania match, but the crowd weren't into Sable as much as the Boston crowd were, and, and that was the main reason why that match was so good. Um, and I think you can understand why, because when Sable comes to the ring, she is desperately trying as much as possible to not let any single person touch her or even acknowledge that they exist, which is, you know, as hot as over she is, is not a good look, if I'm being honest with myself. The right, the big star of this match was Edge. I mean, he has had, he's got a great look. It's a of like a morph between Raven and Sting in WCW with the, the, the great coat and the sunglasses. And he's a good wrestler. You know, the, the dive outside to the Barrow was really impressive, as you said. Although, you know, he's a tortured soul, but I'm afraid, Ed, you're contractually obliged to have some sort of titulation in an intergender match. So you're going to have to spank that ass, I'm afraid. It was a big, like deviation for what this guy should be bringing to the table so that did take me out the match quite a bit um but i don't know it almost made up for it by that holy shit how a kavana that sable hit on mero i mean she's not the most talented wrestler in the world in fact she's probably the least talented wrestler in most companies but the fact that she was to bring that out was really impressive and it was again if if you're a younger fan getting into this product for the most time and you're really into Sable, this is probably one of the most highest profile things you're going to take away from the show. So although the in-ring action was good, overall, again, as you said, this did fill up their WrestleMania match light. Um, So yeah, it was all right. It was. Eric, your thoughts on the match and what do you reckon as to what we've seen of this Edge guy so far? Right, yeah. Credit where credit is due. Sable's Rana wasn't just good. It was perfect. Like that... There's a picture of that Rana in the wrestling textbook. Um, and fair credit to Mark Merrow because that move requires two to tango. And when you factor in their collective experience, Mark Merrow is probably 80% responsible for that looking so good. But it did look good. Yes, it did. And fair credit to her. And fair credit to Mark Merrow again. This guy, we dog on him so much. And through really no fault of his own other than the fact that he – has no charisma and his character sucks and his wife's more popular than him by accident. Um, he's a decent wrestler uh, between the ropes. He can hold a match together. I mean, we've seen numerous 20 minute matches with him in WCW. He and Austin at King of the Ring 96 had a good match. We've seen him have good matches with gold dust before they both got weird. Um, and so Mero can go. And so he and Edge, and that brings me to Edge, had some very nice exchanges in this match. Edge is a young guy. I don't know much about this guy at all, really. Um, but uh, he, he can go. He's good looking. Uh, he's got kind of a mysterious, different character, spanking notwithstanding. And so I think that they're, they're doing the right thing here by exposing Edge in a high-profile storyline, but doing the right thing. He didn't leave with Sable. He didn't really even interact with Sable before and after the match. You can tell it was just kind of, if we want to go kayfabe here, one of those type of things where it was a business relationship. And so they kept Edge looking strong here. 
I think, again, I've, I've joked about this in our January, February, March run up to WrestleMania, but we we're talking about how this match was similar to the WrestleMania match, but something was missing. The something that was missing was the fantastic character work that Goldust and Luna brought to that WrestleMania match that really added an element that Mark Merrow and Jacqueline cannot bring just by their own characters and by their the, the shortcomings in their personalities. So this feud worked when we had really kind of weird, enigmatic people to fill in the charisma, the charisma vacuum that Sable and Merrow and Jacqueline uh, kind of leave. And so you factor an edge and you have a good entertaining match, but it doesn't have kind of the pyro and ballyhoo that the WrestleMania match did because Goldus and Luna are not here. Bob Bamba, lest we forget, made an excellent point of the WrestleMania match when he said when he saw Sable hit the TKO and the powerbomb, the pop that the Boston crowd gave it was unlike any pop he had heard before. It was a, a huge celebration come wow pop, which we now have heard a lot of from many, many crowds for the amazing things they've seen in the WWF for the last five months. But that was one of the first. The only thing that even comes close to it was Austin Stanley McMahon back in September. But Sable is not Steve Austin. You're not going to be able to repeat that medicine a second time. And this did feel a bit after the Lord Mayor's show to me. And you're correct, Eric. The feud wasn't there this time around. The crowd were into Sable back at WrestleMania because Luna was really making her life hell, cutting really scathing promos on her, daubing her face in makeup, smashing her overhead with a pluck. I mean, this feud has just been Sable and Jacqueline making various comments about Mark Merrow, and that's it. There's nothing you can really get into for that. There's no real reason to be behind Sable other than her being Sable, and she does bring a lot with her, etc., etc. Match was fine. I think she acquitted herself well in this one. Again, much like at WrestleMania, she did what she had to do. That Rana was pitch perfect, looked a lot better than her TKO did, that's for sure. And Everyone got the result they wanted. I like the finish, but I'm still, the jury is still very much out for me on Edge. You know, he's only been around for two months and he looks good in the ring. I think it's wrong to bag on that. Yes, one of the Bariquas who is not Savio Vega got injured a couple of months ago. That happens, not his fault. I don't know anything about him, but that's not in a good way. Yes, an enigma, tortured soul, but that hasn't really played out. All he's done is just sit in the crowd a few times and brood a bit. And we've seen mini vignettes of him running after cars and punching random people. When Mankind came in in 1996 as a psychologically abused former piano player, he had vignettes to actually explain what was going on. Here, Edge just looks like a bit of a loner. He doesn't look like somebody, though, who people want to hang out with. He's the wrong sort of, you know, he's not Waylon Mercy yet. He could be. Maybe that's the template, but I'm not really seeing it. It's He's been here two months now. It's time to start fleshing out his character. There's not a whole lot we can actually really fill in the gaps on at this point. They need to start telling us because the guy is certainly talented in the ring. He looked really, really good here. And I think he's going to be a face going forward when we fin finally get to know a bit more about him because he certainly carries himself extremely well. This was a really confident showing. He didn't get anything wrong. Keep at it, by no means is he anything even close to a busted flush yet, but I'm already at the stage where if he's going to mean something, I need to be told. And now's the time to do it after two or three months. And we need to get Sable and Mero and Jacqueline doing something else. 
So much has happened tonight. I don't know what else is going to happen, but you've had some time to think about it. The Undertaker just informed us that Kane is not going to show up here tonight at SummerSlam. So my question to you is, will you defend the tag team titles tonight, or are you, are you thinking of forfeit? Well, I don't know. I, I've lost my car. I've lost my tag team partner. I've lost my sledgehammer. Maybe I ought to forfeit the damn belt. But Mankind, I mean, the people, I mean, they want to get their money's worth. They want to see the this. People, the people want their money's worth. Why? By God, I don't want to disappoint the people. Michael, why don't you be my partner, and we'll go out there, and we'll get our ass kicked all over Madison Square Garden. Better yet, I've got time. Let's go outside, and Mankind can play in traffic. You want your money. You want your money's worth, but my God, that's that's important to everybody. Nick, 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 calm down. It's okay. It's me. I mean, it's okay, Vince. I'm gonna get killed out there. No, no, no. no. It's I'm okay. one person. I, I understand that, but look, nobody really wants to see you go play in the traffic. I don't think that's no, true. Nobody wants to see you come off the top of a cage. I don't think that's come, true. Come on, come either. on. This is Madison Square Garden. It's competition yeah. at its height. Okay? I mean, come on. Do you remember when you were just a little kid and you hitchhiked? Yeah. To Madison Square Garden. You remember that? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember like you used to hang around 33rd Street and uh, wait for the boys to come out so you can get autographs? You remember that? Yeah, but this is a little bit I, I don't understand tonight. that. I don't, but it's Madison Square Garden. It's history. And this is where you belong. This is truly where you belong tonight. And I've got an idea, and it may be insane. It may be just a little crazy. But just think about it. If you, if you can, one man successfully defending the Tag Team Championship. One man in Madison Square Garden. Think I can? On one night. What'll happen to me? I can guarantee you, you'll be in Madison Square Garden's Hall of Fame by next week. I will personally guarantee that. Vince, I don't, I, I don't have my sledgehammer. It's it, false it, count it, anywhere. I don't have it's any It's your weapons. kind of match. I don't it, have a weapon. It's no holes barred. I, you know, falls count anywhere. It's you. It's the, you. But, but where's my sledgehammer's not here. I don't have a weapon. There are plenty of weapons around. I need some minute. things. Because if I can find something, immortality is something I'm very interested in. And this is the biggest arena in the world. And tonight, mankind is going to successfully defend against two people. <laughs> well, look, look, I can hand you, look, I can hand you history in a silver platter. In a silver platter. Vince, if the outlaws don't like it, well, I've got 13 words for him. How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Right then, more on Mankind shortly. It's Lion's Den match time now. This one comes from the Paramount Theatre where Nirvana played that famous Halloween show in 1991, adjacent to the main room at Madison Square Garden. The den looks amazing, cut to a concave shape, surrounded by steel wire, and the ref able to conduct proceedings from a platform at the top. So a truly unique atmosphere for this one, as Eric, I begin to think we have started the business half of this pay-per-view at long last. So then, Lions Den match, Owen Hart with his personal trainer, Dan Seven, versus Ken Shamrock. Ken, from a standing position, drives Owen into the cage, but the black cart can stand straight up out of an armbar. He bounces off the cage, and they exchange some good old G&P for a short time. Side suplex by Ken, followed by a sleeper. Owen fights out with a low blow, but an Irish whip to the cage is not going to slow Ken down. And that's a hard clothesline too. He tears off Owen's shirt and chokes him with it and uses it as a snapmare assister of sorts. Hard knees to the head, but a lovely spinning back elbow by Shamrock. He actually leapt off the middle of the cage to do so. Fantastic, but a huge power slam. He is then whipped into a support beam as the nugget chant is going up. Shamrock chants a fair bit of steam too as Owen lays in the shots. Sweet and Seguri by Owen, then a stun gun into the mesh. 
backbreaker and punches, but he can't get a pile driver off. He settles instead for a great drop kick, but he is unable to lock in the sharpshooter. Both men are on their feet, and what a powerbomb by Ken. That said, we do sure see a lot of powerbombs these days, don't we? Another stiff clothesline, and another elbow off the cage, and a mighty kick. Owen, though, has enough about him for a big power slam of his own, and a hard suplex. Both men are bleeding hard way as Owen puts the sharpshooter on. Here's JR on commentary. Nobody does this better. Let it go, guys. He's right. Even so, let it go. Shamrock gets to the cage wall to break the hold as he pulls himself up to his feet. Superb spot there. And a DDT buys him some time. Owen, though, is up after some kicks and tries to choke out. Shamrock, though, is able to fight out of it. And there is the ankle lock. Owen calls for Seven to help him. But unlike Mother Dearest four years ago, the big man just turns his back in disgust and walks away, leaving Owen no choice but to tap. Dan? If you work in the WWS marketing department and you're getting the task to market Ken Shamrock, all you need to do is just show people this match. It's the epitome of what Shamrock is. He's in an environment that he's known before and it looks similar to the Octagon if people have a vague uh, understanding of what MMA looks like. He is stiff and busts open Owen's mouth with a stiff clothesline just two minutes into the match. He's athletic, he's jumping, he's climbing, he's walking up the cage itself, showing power, speed, and agility, which is what he's got. Um, and it's just it's just all action. There was no rest holes in this match. It was all balls to the wall, goodness fun. You know, and this is, from my opinion, anyway, best sham- the best Shamrock match I've seen so far in his career. And yeah, just everything you want to know about Ken Shamrock is in this match. He looked like a star. Um, and I'd love to say that it was because you've got, a, you know, an amazing talent there like Owen Hart. But I think this was a Ken Shamrock match. Like he did a lot of the stuff in here that made that was great. He was hard. He was fast and he was really athletic, but also, you know, just captivating. He's, he's a, you know, and the crowd were going electric for him. And yeah, I just thought this was so much fun to watch. It was a real, you know, barnstorming, under 10 minutes, just balls to the wall action. Great stuff. And it's impressive that this company's so hot right now that these this crowd basically were there to watch just one match and they still managed to pack it out. And they made it look like a real event, little mini event in a show. And I, yeah, I can't sing enough praise about this actual match. It was brilliant. Take it away, Eric. Well, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start sour and get real sweet. I have two complaints about. Well, I have one complaint about this match, and then one complaint in general. This match was significantly shorter than the D'Lo Val match. It was a minute and a half shorter than Xbox Jarrett, and it was even shorter than the Oddities Kai and Tai match. So, I think the balance of this card really suffered because these guys put on an awesome match. And I, I understand the psychology of having it be short in, in real life and shoot or, you know, work shoot even, um, you know, matches don't have to be long to be compelling and they don't have to be long to be competitive. And that was part of the story they were telling here is that these guys were just beating the piss out of each other at such a high rate that there was no way this was going to go 15 or 20 minutes. So I get it, but selfishly, I would like to see these guys get a lot more time than Kurgan um, or, or Val Venus. That's just me. Um, the other thing before, uh, you know, I really get into it is 
are we at all concerned that Ken Shamrock's two best matches in the Fed have not been matches? Uh, his this one, and then the work shoot he had against Vader, which was not a wrestling match right. at all. Um, his two, and then everything else we've seen him in has been universally underwhelming. He was carried by The Rock in a feud that he lost. Um, the King of the Ring final match they had was underwhelming by my and at least one other panelist assessment um, on that show. And I just can't think of a. And the Shawn Michaels match was a Shawn Michaels match. And as we've talked about before, you don't you get a you know you don't get a pass for being in there with Shawn Michaels. And so Ken has not had uh, a really great match that he's been featured in, other than this match, which was in a cage, and the match against Vader, where his job was to beat the shit out of Vader for five minutes. And so I'm I'm concerned that unless they can keep lining the gimmicks up for Ken Shamrock like this, he's going to fizzle a little bit because he hasn't really shown what he can do between the ropes. But in this match, he was awesome. He looked like a video game character. He was bouncing off the side of the cage. If you watch the Lance Storm Chris Candido match from Heatwave this month, it was a lot of kind of reminded me a lot of what Lance Storm does, but with the ropes in here, it was with the cage. That kind of leaping off ability, trapeze uh, type acts, you know, strong quads and legs, and really using his surroundings uh, to, to help him. And then Owen playing the part of the person who really was out of his element and trying to just keep up with Ken. Owen took Ken's offense and sold Ken's offense and made Ken look like a killer in this cage. Owen Hart, he's never, I think we've kind of firmly established now, he's never going to be world champion. That ship has sailed. But he's a guy who can, for the most part, safely, sorry, sorry Stone Cold, work um, safely and work with anybody and do anything in any element. And that's somebody you just have to keep around and someone who's very important. So Ken did shine here. I agree with you, Dan. My problem is that it wasn't in the ring. And for me, it wasn't a, a large enough slice of the card um, to to not be overshadowed by the ladder match, which unfortunately I think it was. And it was also, dare I say, for Shamrock, 12 months too late. Yes. Yeah. This is the lion's den. This is Shamrock's domain. This is the stuff you have him doing when you're building his character to a WWF audience. We've already seen him with his match against Vader notwithstanding just really drift in as another member of the roster he's had his moments but no more than that he hasn't really stood out at any point in the way they've wanted him to and it almost feels like a desperation move that okay now we're going to have him in his natural habitat to show what this guy actually is you know this guy's a fighter he fights in a cage he beats people up there that should be establishing that should that's not they're a year, they are they are a year out of time on this. And I want to talk about the ship sailing with Owen as world champion. Everybody's accepted that now. There was potentially mileage in Shamrock, but I do wonder if it's long gone at this point. This match in a vacuum was terrific. I think it was just the right length, although in terms of show pacing, as you rightly say, Eric, there's no way this should have got less time than some of the other horrors we got earlier. But I think 10 minutes without them repeating, again, repeating the medicine, probably was just about the right length. It needed to be more than the dungeon match a month ago, which was kind of played off as a shoot. So I think this almost needed to have more wrestling-based moves to it, and it did. I mean, Shamrock felt absolutely rejuvenated in there, but that's also a double-edged sword, really. If he can only really show us what he's truly capable of in matches which really suit him, then what can he really do in a basic one-on-one situation? 
I repeat yeah. what I said last month. I want to see these two in a 15-minute match on pay-per-view. I mean, this should really be, have been the... If you're going to have a Lions Den match in 98 with Shamrock, this should really have been the blow-off rather than the second match in the feud. Well, these two aren't really feuding, if you want to think about it, but I'll let that one slide. But Owen adapted like the pro that he is. So many great spots in this run. I loved Shamrock's spinning elbow off the cage. He was mo- more motivated here than I've seen him since his first match against Vader over a year ago, where, let's face it, he was trying too hard and ended up hurting the poor guy. I just don't know if there's a niche for Shamrock now. I mean, somebody who snaps and beats people up. Again, the WWF champion does that. We don't need a redux version. But then if you're not going to have Shamrock be that character, what else can you do with him? He hasn't got the mic skills to be anything else. Uh, this one has posed more questions in its own right. Great fun. Possibly even sleeper for match of the night. No. It's a sleeper for match of the night. You know, you can tap it on the shoulder, bring it its coffee in the morning and see how it reacts <laughs> to keep that analogy going. But I really do. I am worried about Shamrock at this point. I feel that at the end of the year, we're gonna he's going to be a bit of a what if unless they can do something with him. I know a lot of people on some of the boards have talked about a heel turn. I don't think his character suits a heel. People like ass kickers, but he's just not the ultimate one. I think he's being a bit lost in the grey fodder here, and I'm concerned for Shamrock. Owen could do anything, Shamrock can't, and that's the worry. But here, good match. And we only really care about star ratings these days and snowflakes, so <laughs> you're, you're in with this one. Who cares about story, eh? We all do. Michael Cole talks to Stone Cold. He respects Undertaker more than anybody else in the Federation, but enough of the sentimental crap. He's not afraid to give him a cheap shot or do whatever else it takes to retain the WWF title. And that's all he's got to say about that. See, I can't imagine Ken Shamrock reading those lines. Next up is the WWF Tag Team titles. Mankind is here by himself, with weaponry, of course, as JR rightly illustrates that all McMahon cares about is seeing somebody get beaten up. The Outlaws come to the ring with a dumpster in tow, which is both a nice touch to recent history and a very important plot point. Road Dog cuts off the speech early and the fight is on, with Mankind engaging in a fun chair joust with Billy Gunn. The Outlaws quickly beat him down, though, and then take turns to nail him with metal trays, including a dual one, too. Dog grabs a colander from the dumpster and hits Mick with it, but it has little effect. A running knee to the corner for him and a neckbreaker on the floor for Gunn, followed by a two in this Falls Count Anywhere match. He calls for the apron elbow, but Road Dog cuts him off. They do another number on him, then ram the back of his head into the side of the dumpster. A table is also there, and now the crowd begin to stir. An ECW chant begins, but doesn't go much further. Mankind reverses a setup, then Hiptos has gone through the table, but it's not for much as the NAO recover into a double-team neckbreaker. Two count there as a Foley chant gets rocking, as it should. Double powerbomb through two chairs, but Mick is out again. A spike pile driver, that's a common move these days as well, onto a tag belt, and that will quickly get it done. Road Dog finally gets to complete the second half of his spiel as Billy Gunn then dumps Mankind in the garbage where he belongs. Gee, who threw Billy Gunn nuts? Kane then emerges from the dumpster and then proceeds to smash Mankind in the face with that sledgehammer. Off camera, thankfully. The Outlaws wisely scarper as JR dams Kane all the way to hell. Eric. Okay, first thing. Foley's promo earlier in the night, I think, even including all of his ECW ones, was his best promo I've ever heard. It was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. If, if it doesn't win promo of the year, then then somebody has really uh, done something historical. Um, you're going to hear it on the show, don't worry. Fantastic. Uh, there's nothing wrong with a match that kind of has to course correct. 
And this was clearly a course correction match. This was never going to be a competitive match. Two on one, you know, Mankind, Foley, uh, he's kind of been developed as this tough as nails character, but not necessarily somebody who can't be defeated. He's won as much as he's lost. And so this was a, a, a kind of a filler match that I think was was properly paced and properly executed. Get the tags back on the outlaws. Get the focus back on the tag division since it was – uh, conflated with Undertaker and Austin and then Foley and Kane. You know, they use the tag belts in storyline, which I hate, um, but they've been doing it basically for the past three or four years uh, in every main event or semi-main event storyline they've had. So fine. Get the tags back on the outlaws. Get the tag division going again. Foley is obviously a face at this point. I mean, the crowd loves him. He gives these hilarious, insightful, sympathetic um, promos. Uh, Vince McMahon is taking advantage of him like nobody's business, and so that makes him even more sympathetic. And then build him and Kane. It's fine. This match did exactly what it needed to do. It was never going to be anything more as I as I thought it than I thought it would be, which was just a way to kind of get things realigned. Once we've kind of seen how Foley has kind of taken uh, the world by storm with his character work, and how the Outlaws are still the only over tag team in the Federation, which itself is a worry, Dan. I've never seen a face turn, which is brought about by someone being taken advantage of by almost everybody you know, that is interacting with him. And yet he doesn't look weak and is being by beaten up too much. You know, you know, Mick Foley is being thrown off a 15 foot cell twice. He's been thrown off a dumpster off a stage, uh, hit numerous head in the chair sh- with unprotected chair shots. Um, and all in the space of three months, all in the space of six months. So, I think it's interesting that how they've done that is that you know, turning a guy face because he's been battered from pillar to post, and and then still people are being taken advantage of it. And it's clearly that's what they want to do based on JR's commentary when he's getting the double trade bake shots from the, uh, the New Age Outlaws and the fact that there were Foley chance for you know, by the end of this match, by a very smart MSG crowd who clearly know of what sacrifices Mick has done for the whole business and how much punishment his body's been put through for, you know, almost 14 years now. Um, and yeah, I really like this. You know, it's the only issue I've got in the longer term is that you've got Steve Austin, obviously. Spoiler alert, the two guys in the Intercontinental Ladder match are also poised to break out as big faces. Not forgetting our good old friend Ken Shamrock as well. So there's a lot of ground here for faces and i'm not sure where mankind fits into this he's almost like the ken shamrock a little bit as well where you're not quite sure on the scale where he will fit in um but look it's it's angle more the match it was i don't like seeing mick getting beaten up that severely by even if it was the right decision but that's the point and that's kind of what makes it really good so, yeah, I'll give it again and give us a thumbs up. And I, I'd like to point out as well, Eric, I completely agree with you that I can't stand tag team titles being given to two main event p- players just because they're feuding. Let's make that point just now as well. Mankind is the guy that can be there to kind of be like to be there with Stone Cold and like, oh, Vince hates you. Well, Vince is obviously a dick to me. Like, can't you kind of see like an uncomfortable face face alliance with, the, I mean, fully fully Austin and I think even rock are probably the three most over faces right now. Undertaker is not in their level as far as the crowd reactions as I interpreted them. Um, 
especially with this weird Kane shenanigans, don't you think that like Foley is the guy that can elevate to kind of be the yin to Austin Jiang in his continual feud with Kane and Undertaker? I would really like to see something like that. I, mean, I was going to get to this on the main event. I'm still not absolutely sure who Austin feuds with yet. So if you have Mankind there as some sort of conduit, you can naturally extend the Austin versus maybe Undertaker feud a bit more. But yeah, we will get to that. This match did everything it had to. It got the titles back on the Outlaws. Kane looked like the sick evil monster that he needs to. And this is where star ratings don't matter. Intercontinental title ladder match, Triple H versus The Rock. This one gets the big, dramatic, historic video package treatment. And you know what? I think they deserve it. Our friends for DX Band come out first, and unlike at WrestleMania, they don't get the lyrics to their own song wrong. They, seriously, go back. Go back. They, they completely screwed it up four months ago. I'm not going to suggest why. They didn't have a not. tuning fork, though. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, so I mentioned Nirvana at the Paramount Theatre earlier. The sound, probably not the greatest sound quality for this. We're not talking song remains the same here either. Uh, they play it in the ring in its entirety, nevertheless. Triple H tries to sing along, and well, he bloody well shouldn't. He then trashes the drum kit afterwards because that is what the cool bands do, and that isn't it. God, that man is not a fraud. Anyway, The Rock is out next, and what a star he looks as he puts the belt between his teeth and climbs the ladder on the outside. So, let's do this. Like all of us, JR remembers the ladder match at WrestleMania 10, which, also like all of us, he would only have been watching at home at the time. <laughs> cheap shot, cheap shot. Rock. Here's the rock. The camera doesn't pick it up, but my lip-syncing skills. Fuck yourself, motherfucker. Fuck you. Jesus, man. And yours. <laughs> In with fists of fury from Triple H and the face buster of damnation. Crotch Chop gets a little reaction, and we get an early rock-bottom attempt, but that goes nowhere. See also a pedigree, resulting in Helmsley being backdropped to the outside. Rock makes his way to the ladder, but he gets cut off and they brawl in the aisleway, because this is MSG, you know. Lenny is in the front row, and he is enjoying himself. Back in with some Rock uppercuts, but again Helmsley cuts him off with that bloody knee. He tries the ladder now, but Rocky rams him into it. Big chance of you know what, and Rock is the first man to bring the ladder near to the ring, but not quite all of the way yet. He is able to whip Triple H into it, with Helmsley jumping into the bump somewhat, and then a clothesline. He is down whilst Rock sets up the ladder on the inside. He slowly climbs, and get used to that, but Helmsley recovers the leap off the rope and pull him down, with the ladder then falling on him. Hmm, where did they pull that spot from? Triple H with the ladder clothesline and then drives it into Maivia's chest. Rocky then comes back with some leg locks, and is that a let's go Rocky chant? I think it might be, you know? The more familiar chant does replace it, though, when he tries to trap Hunter's knee between the ladder and then mercilessly stomps on it. He nabs a chair and pounds on Home Depot's finest with it. Vladimir tells Rocky to suck it as he works on Triple H's knee on the outside. And what the hell, now we genuinely have bona fide dueling chants re the rock. He bridges the ladder between the apron and guardrail and drops Helmsley knee first right on it. I've got two words for Hunter. Ouch, ouch. <laughs> JR drops a reference to tool time, of all things, as Rocky starts to climb. Amazingly, Triple H recovers and again is able to shove him off. Hunter wisely pushes the ladder out of the ring, but it's only brief respite as Rock rallies and slingshots him into it with it propped against the railing. 
His follow-up bump into the announce table looked rather ropey, I'm sad to say. Back into the aisle, and now HH is backdropped onto the horizontal ladder. He is taking quite the beating. I have to, of course, remain impartial, so I cannot tell you whether or not I like the fact Helmsley is taking a beating. Mark Henry tosses another ladder in the ring, and again takes a sweet time climbing, does our boy Rock. Henry prevents him getting in, until a China forearm shot puts him down, and yes, Helmsley pushes him down again. The pops for these spots are noticeably diminishing. Baseball side by Holmesley with Rock. Sorry, baseball side by Holmesley, which the Rock takes full force. And now it's Triple H's turn to climb slowly. Audience do seem to be into it, but in a much better save, Rock actually flips the ladder over and both men go down. That did feel really dramatic. Rock is bleeding heavily and he wells away on Triple H, and a big DDT puts both men down. After a double down for a while, they're able to climb and they fight right on the top rung. Helmsley takes a header into the other ladder, which is very conveniently set up on the top rope, but he then rebounds into the standing ladder to send Rocky flying. Rock tries to nail him with the ladder, but Helmsley responds with vicious chair shots. Rock manages to block and then sets him up with a slam for a people's elbow with Helmsley laying on the ladder. Now that is a Rocky chance, all right. After another scuffle, Helmsley gets to climbing, but from there, a rock bottom puts Helmsley down again. Rock is climbing now, but the old show his ass pull down does for that. And there's a pedigree, and the attendees are really feeling it. As Henry throws powder in Triple H's eyes to cut that one off. But despite being blinded, he actually tries to ascend the ladder, and he almost gets through the belt. Rock, though, is able to outclimb him. Yeah, I, I will not let you or anybody else sully the good goddamn name of this match. This is the best WWF match since Austin Brett at WrestleMania 13, and I'll fight anybody who disagrees. Um, no, but seriously, like it's the slow climbing. You you were critical. I'm just gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go into work mode here. So just be prepared. Um, you criticize the slow climbing, but you fail to mention that they beat the ever-living tar out of each other before one guy even tried to climb the ladder, which justifies the slow climbing. Because if you've ever been punched in the head multiple times and tried to climb stairs or a ladder, it's pretty slow. I don't know. Maybe just me. This match, though, seriously, it had the best build. It had the most logical layout. It had the most reasonable finish. It had the best psychology. It was the best well-worked. And it had no obvious, like, errors of any match on this card or any match that I can think of. These two guys should not have had a five-star ladder match. They don't do the athletic stuff that Sean or even Razor does. I would I would say that Razor in 95 when they did the SummerSlam rematch, which was, you know, the last great ladder match that I can think of um, in the Fed. Uh, Might have been the last one they'd done. Um, 
Razor's probably a better worker than either of these two guys at that time. But for some reason, these two guys just have such good chemistry, and they both kind of recognized that they're not flippy wrestlers. They're not high-risk guys, that neither of them can be the Sean, and thus neither of them can be the Razor. So we have to use the latter in a different way, and we have to pack this match with story and psychology, and they did that. And then the finish. It made so much sense because if you go back to Raw, the Nation of Domination humiliated China, and I mean humiliated her, and made China a face before Triple H was even a face. I mean, if you want to watch like straight up degradation of a of a person, of a woman, of a strong character on television, go back and look at what the Nation of Domination did to China, which completely justified Triple H being the face in this match. It completely justified the finish, and it completely justified Mark Henry's involvement in the match. I, I can't think of a better match these two guys could have had. It went 25 minutes, and it felt like it was 10. They beat the piss out of each other, and these are two guys that you and I, Rory and then Dan, we've all kind of criticized, I think, about kind of being soft in the ring, not really being believable workers, being sports entertainers, because they've kind of come up really through the WWF system. But you can't get to the end of this match and think these two guys didn't leave it all out in the ring. Just, just fantastic. If you have an expectation for what a ladder match is supposed to be or, or what a match like this is supposed to be, leave it at the door because this was a different take on a match that I think was, was done extraordinarily. And I think Triple H was elevated. I think China was elevated crazy through this feud. And it's, it's, it seems like The Rock is moving on to bigger and better things. So if you want to have a match that elevates folks, is laid out well, and really makes this show above average, it's this. I think this match was just fabulous. Well, <laughs> okay then, Dan, you've set yourself the task of following that. Well, I've got no chance of doing that, though. Um, but, so I'll go through the things that I agree with Eric with. I agree that they, this match looked sore. Like, the ladder, every ladder shot they did here looked like it really hurt. You know, the catapult, the t all the tip-offs they did, the baseball slide into Rock's face. All those looked like they were so sore, even more sore than the, the two Shaw and Razor matches. I agree that this the finish made perfect sense for China's character. You know, this wasn't just her interfere because she's a member of DX. This felt like she actually wanted to, like, turn Rock's balls into grapes. You know, these were, this was actually meant something to her. And I agree that this kind of felt like a different match. It was so psychology-based. It was all, like, they beat the piss off each other before they even went to the ladder. All the work on Triple H's knee, um... It, that so that I would definitely agree with all that stuff, and it this was an excellent match. Don't get me wrong, but are... <laughs> I, you mentioned Mark Henry's involvement. I I generally don't remember anything he did in this match. The powder in Triple H's eyes didn't have any effect because he basically just got up and went up the ladder anyway, and then he just stands there and watches his 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 leader gets punched in the balls and does nothing. So if you're gonna have Mark Henry come out, you either have to have China level him so hard that he gets knocked out or don't bring him out at all and that really did make me come out of the finish a little bit because i'm just standing there waiting for mark henry to get into the ring so that's a big black mark on on him as a performer really but that's a nitpick and yes i do think the climbing in particular for the first couple of times went up the ladder was too slow particularly the rock and triple h i think which was milking it a little bit too much 
And it did take me out of it a little bit going, okay, I know you've been in a war, but when you're the finish of the match and your climbing is faster than it was kind of, you know, the first time around you tried it, it takes me out a little bit, a little bit. And that is what the black mark, I think, on this match is that sometimes it was a little bit too slow. Even though they beat the piss out of each other and even though it was sore, it was a little bit, oh, come on, just a little bit faster just so I can suspend my disbelief a little bit more. Um, I like to again. This is still a really excellent match, but there are a couple of flaws in it, and it, it wasn't as good as it was for you, Eric. That's just my opinion. Still, really good though. <laughs> and I like to point out that you think mankind's the main event face. I challenge you to find an image on this show that makes a guy look like a star more than The Rock's pose with the belt before he gets in the ring before the bell rings. Just print money with that guy with a title belt in his hand standing across the ladder. It is brilliant. And we've criticized, you know, Triple H for being not really sympathetic enough, but the crowd went mental for him winning that match. Yeah. So we can now add him to the list of guys just ready to break into that main event scene based on how over they are as a babyface. Um, so, yeah, excellent. Not quite as perfect as Eric thinks. Rory, may I on one thing that Dan said? Of course. Because I knew this was going to come up. I knew this was going to come up. And I didn't have a chance to rewatch the match for a third time uh, before <laughs> we, we went on the show. But I just thought about this because the Mark Henry thing was bothering me. And I think we need to go back and watch it because I'm nearly certain that the reason Mark Henry didn't interfere when China interfered was because Mark Henry is being accosted by the referee for throwing powder in Triple H's face. Correct. 100% correct. Okay. So there you go. So well, gonna... come, go, okay, okay, I'll take that back. I'll have to rewatch it again. I mean, any any criticism of Mark Henry, I'm normally front row and centre for, but I've got to try and be fair in my role as host here. My point is, they just thought of everything in this match, other than yes. the climbing, which I agree is 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 criticizable. Yes, that yes, C- correct, criticizable, which is why I criticised it. Okay, <laughs> this was an outstanding, Lee put together and executed match. I don't know who the agent was for this. I'm going to say that they might well have been touched by the hand of Pat. I never knew it, but of course it was. This was expertly laid out from bell to bell for 25 minutes. These two had so many marks to hit, lots of stuff to remember, plenty of spots to work in and recall, and they managed to be on point full beam with each and every one of them. And I give both guys the fullest of full credit for executing everything that they needed to to get the reaction they wanted to tell the final story of Triple H's redemption, of him climbing that ladder, winning the belt for himself, for DX, for China after what happened last week, and getting a huge pop from a smart MSG crowd. They did all of that, and I will go to my grave defending both guys for what they managed to do to carry it out 100%. But... (laughs) Yes? If anything, the last one minute of my rap there illustrates what I'm going to say next. That for me, it just felt a little bit too artificial for me to go all the way with it. It did feel at times as though they were reciting a script Give these guys another 12, 18 months. 
put them in another ladder match, I reckon they'll be capable of better when they've really got that improvisational riffing down where they can really put their own stamp on things. It still looked as though they were trying to remember what they needed to do next to 100% stick to the black writing on the white script that had been typed out for them an hour or so before. And again, they did it. They didn't get anything wrong apart from maybe a couple of rather soft-looking bumps and the slow climbing, but I won't go into that again. These two did everything that was asked of them, and they got what they wanted. They got what they wanted from me, who is a bit of a skeptic with these two when the bell normally rings, and I was able to put aside most of it throughout this match. It felt really dramatic in the last five minutes, the kind which, as we say so often, only the WWF, when they put their mind to it, are capable of doing it better than anybody else. And they did. And I think one of the images of the year will be that one of Helmsley holding the belt high. The Rock holding the belt high between his teeth before the match. Be a very close second, by the way. So yes, I recommend this match if you did not see it. It is really, really good. And graded on a curve, it probably is the best WWF match of this year so far. But... I don't like to feel I am just watching a rigid script when I sit down to watch wrestling. I want to give the two guys in the ring credit for being able to do things on their own. I still don't think they're quite ready for it yet. This was a far cry from the match a month ago where they needed all the bells and whistles in the world. No fewer than eight lots of interference just to get through a half an hour match. There was no interference here until the first, for the first 23 minutes and that is testament to them. These two guys... The rocket is being strapped to them. The company want them to go places and they are really, really doing it. And it will be interesting to see, especially throughout the rest of this year, how far they can take it, especially as Helmsley, and I take no pleasure in saying this, does actually have a legit knee injury. So watch out for that. Well done, guys. You did everything you needed to do, everything the office wanted you to do, everything the crowd was supporting you in doing. But can you do it again off your own steam? Was this a one-off? And that is what I want to see going forward. One more thing on this one, talking about the crowd reaction, Dan. Those Rocky chants, now they are something to watch and listen to going forward, are they not? Oh, yeah. Damn right. Like, as we said in this show for months, he is like, he's a heel and he's still hated by the crowd, but he's just so damn entertaining. <laughs> you know, you know, no one is as entertaining you know, with a mic, with a kind of microphone in his hand, and The Rock. Mankind's better as a promo. Austin is more—I don't know what the word is. Like it connects with the crowd the most. But in terms of just making you go bloody hell, The Rock is the best on the microphone in the WWF at the minute. So it's just, and it's great that you've got, you know, three real bona fide faces potentially coming in here with Foley, Rock, and, and Austin that have all got really interesting ways of being cheered. And that's something that we would love to see, you know. And again, I've mentioned this before, we've got Triple H getting huge pops as the leader of DX and there's Shamrock as well, who is the king of the ring. He's, you know, really well positioned. So we've got five really over good guys here that could easily, you know, be in the top of a card match. How good is that? At last, a bit of depth. Eric, one more on the rock. Would we be? Would it be wrong of us just to write off these cheers as the usual MSG outlier or is there really something behind this guy? As a face, I'm talking about. Uh, no, I think it's the opposite. I think sometimes you have MSG outliers 
but that typically happens when you have like a strong heel that gets cheered in MSG, for example. But let's not forget that the first crowds to cheer Bruno San Martino and Hulk Hogan and really Stone Cold Steve Austin were the MSG crowd. And so I'm not saying that, that The Rock is going to elevate anywhere near those guys. He's got a lot of work to do before he's somebody that can be um, – you know, a reliable number two guy. Let's not get that wrong. But I think if we're going to judge the chance that he's getting, I think I'd be more inclined to put them in that Bruno Hulk Stone Cold category as opposed to the, you know, ironically, you know, the, the Brooklyn cheer or the, the New York cheer that sometimes heels get in MSG undeservedly. So, no, I, I think I think if anything, The Rock, especially as, as, uh, as unrevered, if that's even a word, as he was, even when he came out at Survivor Series 96, this same crowd in, in less than two years has, has turned in a positive way towards him. I think it can only be seen as a good sign. Yep. And have him be a wisecracker. If you are going to turn him face, which I still wouldn't do quite yet, but it's going to come at some point, do not bring back the feathers and the cheer pet hairstyle and him telling us just how happy he is to be here. It didn't work the first time. It sure as hell is not going to work the second time. Okay, let's get this done. Main event. Undertaker is out first and stone me. Isn't his current music just magnificent? The foreboding menace of it fits the current incarnation of his character perfectly. But he does get only the polite respect pop I predicted last month. As for Austin's, well, I think the garden will need to be rebuilt again after this. Undertaker actually allows himself a small roll of the eyes when Austin gets to the ring, which is just the sort of human touch he should have. Okay, we're off. They stare down, and we are ready. WWF Championship. Steve Austin defending against The Undertaker. Austin straight in with those punches, but Taker grabs him by the throat and throws bombs in the corner. Austin with a kick and back with some mega punches. And then a clothesline by Taker and a quick cover, which I like for a quick attempt at a two count. And let's go. Austin chanters up as we hit the collar and elbow. Okay. Austin briefly wins that. But Taker is able to control the arm. Interesting. He misses a short arm clothesline, though, so Steve executes a roll-up out of it for two, and then a drop toe hold, and a hammerlock. When he needs to, which these days is not often, this boy can still wrestle. Taker fights up, but Austin kicks him. As Taker raises his head, he then connects with Austin's and knocks Steve to the ground. That was not a planned spot. We'll come back to that one in a bit. Suplex by Undertaker, but he misses the leg drop. Whip reversal when Taker blocks a Thez press into a stun gun for two. Austin is clearly groggy after that clash of heads a minute or so ago, to the point where JR has to make mention of it. As Austin's SummerSlam curse continues, Undertaker stomps him in the back. Austin just about makes it to the buckles on a whip, and he is not right at all just now. He wraps Undertaker's legs around the rope and slams his knees into them. Taker with that diving clothesline of his, and then he slaps on a chokehold on the mat. Some of the crowd seem to know what has happened here. Taker walks the ropes with Austin in an armbar, but the champ has it scouted and is able to drag him down to the mat. Uh-oh, here comes Kane. Austin sees him all right. But in a really good spot, Undertaker shakes his head and tells Kane to go to the back. Yep, I love that. Big old slug first is won by Austin, and then he rams Taker's leg into the apron just two minutes after the last time he did it. Hmm. Massive clothesline by Taker off said apron. Austin all but landed on the other side of the ring from that one. Taker, though, just waits around a bit so Stone Cold can clothesline him over the ropes, and I still don't think Austin is entirely with us at this point. The two of them all but disappear into the audience. We come back with Taker backdropping the rattlesnake onto the concrete, then back over the guardrail we come. 
Into the ring, Austin with the kick and the wham, but not the stunner as Taker slips out. He then catches Austin and drives him back first into the post. Into the ring again, and SCSA tries to fight back until he gets backdropped to the outside. His back catches the apron as he falls, which could have been very nasty. Undertaker then dumps Austin onto the Spanish announce table, and I don't see this one ending prettily. The dead man then goes to the top rope, and, and, and leg drops Austin through the table. Blood, E, and indeed, hell. We see many a replay of this, and as well we should. The image of both men laying between broken tables and errant chairs is quite the memorable one. After some recovery time, Taker rolls Austin back in for one, two, no. That son of a bitch won't quit. Language, Timothy. Stone Cold with a boot to the face, but he is out on his feet. Off the ropes it is, then double clothesline time. After that double down, we exchange more strikes until the press does hit at last, and then a big elbow to the throat. Now this is really feeling like the fight that it should. Austin goes for a stunner, but it turns out to be a sort of ish neckbreaker. I'm not sure what happened there for a two count. Taker gets a choke slam on, then calls for the tombstone. Austin though slips out, but he himself cannot get the stunner. Undertaker opts for a Russian leg sweep instead. He stands over Austin in another great visual, but he still cannot successfully walk the ropes. Steve instead with a low blow, and then he gets the stunner. Hebner counts and takes a sweet time over it for one, two, and three. Steve Austin retains. Undertaker is up rather quickly, and he has the belt in his hand. He teases Whacking Stone Cold with it, but instead he presents it to the champ and gives him a look to say, yep, this time you got me. Fair and square. This time. Austin celebrates as Kane joins Undertaker in the aisle. They look on. SummerSlam 98 is now in the books. Dan, they were going for Epic here. Did they achieve it? No. Correct. Carry on. (laughs) I feel so sorry for Steve Austin because SummerSlam clearly is not his event. You know, let's take take out what happened last year. But even in 1996, he wasn't even on the card after he won King of the Ring. So we should just give up and just let Austin have that this August pay-per-view off from now on. And I think he beat two-time former world champion Yokozuna in a minute and a half on the pre-show. Exactly. Yeah, couldn't be put over more strongly. Because, yeah, I feel so sorry for this because this is, I do think that they were obviously going for Epic, as you said, Rory, and the hype video with, you know, the tagline playing in the background was Epic. This did feel like the biggest one-on-one singles match this year, more than WrestleMania, in my opinion. And in MSG, this felt big. And then Austin gets the chin two minutes into the match and is clearly not with it for the entirety of the rest of the card uh, match. So Taker has to carry him for it, lead him through. And as much as he's come on in the two years since he's been involved with the WWF main event wrestlers and the main event title scene, he's still not that great to pull off an epic, you know, carry job effectively because Austin is is he's not all with it, I'm afraid. And this meant that the match to me felt bitty. You know, there was a lot of good spots in this. There was, you know, the choke slam from the ring apron into the ring. The obviously, you know, the big bear hug charging into the post. The obvious big leg job through the Spanish announce table. But all of this felt like Undertaker's in control here, or in a doing it in a way that he can make Austin do it and you know easily guide him through it. And then that obviously means that the finish itself with the stunner coming out of nowhere and the four count that it will happen that gives Taker give, makes it feel a bit 
flat and it doesn't mean you know you want in a wrestling match like if you want to go for an epic you want to be able to change gears at the right time exactly the right point and get the crowd more and more and more hang on every move you make in the ring and they did not do that there's no way that they come close to that it was still good it was still a good match it was still a perfectly serviceable main event which is still better than anything wcw can put out in the main event scene at this time but it did not live up to the hype that the build this main event presented. And that's a shame. Because I, I do wonder what we could have got had Austin not been knocked out two minutes into the match. So, yeah, it, it was fine. It was good. You know, arguably very good. But if you want to compare this to Austin's main event run, it's not as good as his matches with Foley. Um, and I want to compare it to Undertaker. It's not as good as his later matches with Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels. Um but, you know, it was still good. It was still serviceable. So I can't, like, complain too much that they overhyped the main event, which was not an epic five-star classic. It certainly wasn't. Eric, part of my problem with this match is I just don't know what they were really trying to do. It wasn't a brawl. It wasn't a technical match. It wasn't a face-v-face throwdown showdown. It was just a WWF main event, wasn't it? And that's not enough now. Right, yeah, and I think I think Willing's point kind of kind of hits the nail on the head. We don't know what they had necessarily laid out. Maybe the same match they had laid out before Austin, you know, clearly became severely concussed. I mean, his eyes rolled back in his head, and he hit the ground hard. Yeah. Um, and so we don't know the match they had laid out, and and so to the extent that this was just another main event, I think that's just because that's all they could do. Um, and Undertaker, I think we can all agree over the last, basically since Foley came in and maybe even uh, since 95 when he kind of got got finished with uh, feuding with the Million Dollar Corporation, has had a string of really good matches with, with three guys in particular, Brett, Sean, and, and Foley. And those three guys all have in common is that I guarantee they were leading and calling the matches and, and laying them out with the agent in charge or or with Vince himself and Undertaker's his strengths as a character and as a wrestler don't lie in being the general that can call the match in the ring but when it becomes clear and it did become clear that he had to do that here Dan's point became 100% salient which is it became a very spotty match it became okay let's do this okay rest hold let's reset let's do this brawl to the crowd kills 10 minutes like the Dudleys you know that kind of thing and then I'm even wondering if they would have even tried that absurd leg drop spot if Undertaker couldn't tell if the crowd was kind of dying um and that fair fucks to them certainly brought everybody back in in the last three or four minutes of this match was the best part once they got back in the ring once the leg drop spot happened and then again the finish comes out of nowhere and again we have the undertaker beaten clean on television which is just kind of weird still. And so yeah, we'll never know the match they should have had. The match we got, I think Dan summarized correctly. It just didn't quite come together and when you say yeah, it was just a WWF main event, you're you're pretty well right. I hope they these guys get another opportunity to really show what what they might have done because they've had matches before that were pretty good. This one just really through no fault of their own. Um didn't didn't live up to the tremendous hype that it had. Apparently, both Austin and Taker were very unhappy with this match themselves. So we cannot get the old cynical, smart wrestling fan black mark against our name on this one because they are with us. That makes five of us. 
and I'm sure it will make all of us listeners as well. But by all means, via the usual channels, if you disagree with us, let us know. This never got started. And I think it's very easy, given the guys involved, to give them a free pass for Austin's injury. And make no mistake, he got his bell wrong. You can tell. Just watch his eyes as soon as he gets hit. A shocked, dare I say, stunned look on his face when Undertaker's head hits him. Not expected at all. And he was out of it for two or three minutes. He was being walked through the match. So even simple things like Irish whips were like a life's labour for him. And it took him a long time to click back in. Apparently, even in the hotel, the night of the show, he was still walking around a bit glassy-eyed. So he took a whack there. And we have to have, we have to label on the sympathy in terms of analysing this match. But at the same time, I don't think we could turn around and say, oh, yes, this would have been a four-star brawl if he hadn't been banged in the head after two minutes. Because I don't think the match we got in terms of its layout would have been drastically different from this. I still think that that ludicrous, if undeniably impressive, leg drop through the table still would have been there because we're duty-bound to have a big spot in every main event now, no matter how much sense in the context of the match it makes or not. Why would Undertaker want to do that? He doesn't want to kill Austin. He just wants to take the title. That's been his element of the feud, so much as Austin has been involved in it, like we said earlier. And that bit I've liked. So for him just to try and maim Austin with a leg drop through the table, I didn't really buy it. It was needlessly painless, painless, needlessly painful, potentially painful for the sake of it, especially with a man who is actually nursing, could be a concussion in there. So... But then with a move like that, can you really go off script? I mean, Vince McMahon would give them absolutely pelters if they hadn't had the big table break moment, which is now Duragur every month. But I digress. Finish was completely out of nowhere from a spot we'd already seen in the match. I mean, would Undertaker really be going for the walk rope armbar 20 minutes in after he's already been unsuccessful 10 minutes afterwards? And that is enough to catch him off guard for the stunner. <sighs> it seems all the effort that was went into laying out the IC title match was taken away from this one. Maybe everybody in the back, Pat or Vince or whoever, thought that these two could carry it themselves and essentially put it together. And yet, like I said just now, it was, wasn't any of the three or four types of match it could have been. It was a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, C and D, but it was 25% for each. It wasn't 50, 75 from A and B, which I could have taken. It was this bit, this bit, this bit, this bit. And those just didn't mesh and didn't match. And the crowd, dare I say it, there were times they were out on this one. They were out on a Stone Cold Steve Austin match. Huge pop at the start, big pop at the end. But I think they were more engaged in the IC title match, which again, it was built better. <sighs> you can't just expect the crowd to react, give it MSG or not. And whilst this one wasn't the bust, which they served up for us 15 months ago, if anything, I was more disappointed by this one. This just should have been the ultimate babyface epic that it has been correctly built as. If you looked at the poster for this, when you've got Taker and Austin in cartoon form hitting each other with bits of the New York skyline, I wanted to see that replicated in match format. And all we got was a shade above mid-ranking main event, which was carried by its names and not much more. One thing I will say in his defense, I really liked the Kane spot. I groaned when he came out. I didn't want to see him. Neither did anybody else. That was nice. It keeps those fires burning and it meant and it keeps Undertaker face until the inevitable heel turn, which is coming whether we like it or not. So disappointing is the only word for this one. It wasn't a disaster. It wasn't horrendous. It was perfectly watchable. Austin got to hold the belt at the end. We got the little respect spot between two faces. 
obviously leading to Taker becoming a bad guy down the line. But it left a sour taste. And again, we cannot just write it off as these things happen for the, the bump after two minutes. I don't think the match would have been any better. Maybe, Eric, as you say, they'll get another chance to prove us wrong. But these two have done it now two times in a main event on a pay-per-view. And I know August 1998 is a far cry from May 1997 for many, many reasons. But I'm beginning to think that these two just don't really have the chemistry they need. And that is a worry. Yes, it was the main event. So that is how we wrap for SummerSlam 98. And we'll indeed wrap for this show shortly. Eric, I'm looking forward to this one. Your score rating out of 10. Oh, it's not, it's not that hard. I mean, the first half of the show was just completely forgettable. Just throw it in the bin, as you guys say, uh, and pick it up at the Lions Den match uh, through the main event. And the main event, as we talked about, was was disappointing if it didn't have a couple of good spots. Ladder match, Lions Den match, both fabulous, uh, just absolutely fabulous matches and different. Um, two matches on a three-hour card. It's hard to go above a five out of ten. On the strength of the ladder match, though, 5 out of 10. Well done. I agree. Two outstanding matches, two you know, must-see matches. But I'm probably higher on at least three matches than you are, Eric, which means I'm bumping it up. Um, there was only one real terrible thing going on in this show, and that was I met, absolutely awful. But I think the main event was good enough to satisfy the hype, even though it was a disappointment. And then you've got two or three very, you know, good matches that are good, you know, very, very good for money for money. And that's, you know, brings together a very good all round show. You know, there's, you know, all the old, you know, the Hulkamania shows, for example, have one or two highlights, but some of it is absolutely awful in terms of the work rate. And there's no real, I think this is probably the biggest main event that they've had on Summer Sam off the top of my head. I can't think of anything bigger, maybe Warrior Rude. But yeah, as I said, it's a really good all-round show with an outstanding ladder match and a very, very good Shamrock Owen Hart match. So I'm going to give it seven and a half. Bulldog Brett was bigger than this main event, wasn't it? Yes, Not for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you got Warrior Savage in a non-finish when you got to see that show. So uh, what about, no, what about Zeus was huge? You guys just forget because it was so long ago. But Zeus Hogan Savage that was that was manic. Hulk Hogan, Beefcake Barber. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big fan of SummerSlam 89 anyway. But yes, uh, uh, switch the numbers around to SummerSlam 98. Oh, I've gone back and forth on this one. I'm going to settle for... Uh, that seems too high. Sorry, I'm going for a seven. There we are. I watched this show from start to finish and never once was I actually bored by it. There were times where I hated it, the second match included, but I, at that point, if you're going to have a match that terrible, and boy, did they succeed on that score, at least get it out of the way early so people can do whatever you need to do to wait, prepare themselves for the big matches, and that is what happened. The match which was meant to feel the, big, feel the biggest, though, didn't. The match was felt, was planned on being the second biggest, was the biggest match. So if you can approach it knowing that that is the case, then your enjoyment of the show might be slightly enhanced. I was preparing myself for the best. And I think that probably carried my enjoyment to seven, even though I don't think this was a seven out of 10 show on paper and the main event did let it down. 
But I'm just a stickler for big shows and MSG. You know, they're almost five out of ten for me just by virtue of turning up. And then if you add the Lions Den match and the IC title match to that, that takes you to a seven, as fortunate as it might be. So the mildest recommendation for a seven out of ten show that I can give. But if you do put this on from start to finish and you do have a big pillow to hide behind for the second match, you're going to enjoy it. But we've got a lot of intrigue as we move forward into September. And that, everybody, will bring an end to Volume 1 of our August 1998 shows. Five years, Eric. Five years. My brain hurts a lot, as a great man once had it. Thoughts on this show, the five years we've been doing this? I just think it's cool that a bunch of people from around the world can get together a couple times a month and, and you know, talk about, about shows. And, you know, this has been a really – I think this podcast is interesting and unique. And, um, uh, you know, we've had some people criticize kind of the gimmick, and that's fine. You don't have to listen to it. Um, but I think it's cool, and uh, it's been a, a real joy listening to the show for two or three years and then coming aboard – and being a contributor for hopefully, you know, many, many more years to come, at least to get me through WCW uh, until it closes, because I haven't <laughs> seen any of it. So, um, you know, and if, and if you agree with me, and here comes the plug, uh, go on iTunes and give us five stars and say anything you want. It doesn't matter what you say, but it turns out that you have to, you know, it's more helpful for us if you say anything and give us five stars, and if you just give us five stars and don't say anything at all. Uh, and also Patreon. Uh, slash wrestling 20 YRS just you know so we can subscribe to the observer and the torch just to give us something to disagree with every month but <laughs> you know really you know we've had a lot of turmoil and and, uh, and upheaval this year at the top and you and Chris and Chris are doing just a fabulous job and shout out to Bob for still you know being around and being in our in our sphere to some degree and I just hope the show exists in perpetuity that's that's all I hope you know the, the beauty about the show is it can go on you know, for 20 years longer than pro wrestling exists for. So we're, we're off to a good pace, and I hope it just continues. And Rory, you've been doing a fabulous job. Thank you, my friend. As long as wrestling existed 20 years ago, then this podcast is going to continue. Dan, anything you'd like to add on what we do here on the show? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, the gimmick is, as you said, is Eric, it's um, something unique. And I do think it actually is good to look at it with, if, if you are, current eyes it's really interesting to look at it and not going back with the benefit of hindsight it is a really interesting viewpoint into into wrestling um and yeah i've, I've just had a blast you know going back to an era which i grew up in and talking about it which is you know which is something that i think most people who have some kind of wrestling fandom would love to do and i've been really enjoyed it and it's it's good to meet you know and talk with guys who who have who have very similar viewpoints to my own and some wildly different viewpoints as well, Eric. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've I, I, I loved it. And yeah, as you, as uh, we want to make the show bigger, we want to make the show better. And, you know, the big thing you can do to help us do that is to give us a, a rating and a review. You know, I would say if you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. But, you know, all honest opinions are valid. So yeah, head over to iTunes Podbeam, SoundCloud, wherever you are listening to this podcast and, and give us some feedback and, and a rating review. We'd love it to hear from you. And I really hope that you would enjoy the, all the great bonus content that we're now going to hopefully give to you on Patreon, which is, you know, again, we're going to be talking more about wrestling, which is great. And yeah, 
hit us up. We're, we're gonna we're gonna keep rolling and looking to get the ball rolling even more as we head on, you know, into some of the most exciting years in wrestling history. Well said, that man. And yes, I reiterate, please, please, please leave us a review. Even if you are somebody who has been with us since the start and is one of our more biased fans, yes, they do exist, then please tell us what it is you like about the show. And do not be frightened to say what you dislike as well. Every single review will always get read and every last syllable and pixel will be taken on board, I assure you. We do not rest on our laurels here because we're going to be here for a very, very long time. And we want to make sure we keep bringing you the best content we possibly can. Having a regular change of guests every single month, we're always looking to bring you people on. If you think you can match us or even beat us, then just drop us a line via the Twitters or the Facebooks and we will see what we can do to get you on the show. So patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs. To say thank you, as we want to thank you for listening every month, you can do that with $5 a month. You get all the regular shows nice and early as soon as they're ready and edited. And you're going to get at least one bonus show out of Time Machine every single month. Could be WWF, ECW, WCW, maybe even TNA, maybe even this New Japan thing, which all the cool kids seem to like these days. Could be a watch along, could be a discussion, could be an awards based show. That is our reward to you for your support. We, we value you massively. This is these shows, they only come along once a month, three times. And yes, they are long, but then they have to be long because a lot of work we put into them. TV reviews take a lot of time. I'll let a bit of light in on magic for you as we're recording this on. Over 26th of August. Next week, we're recording the WCW show. I've only watched one out of the five Nitros for August, which I need to watch. <laughs> but I will get there. Every single last morsel of Nitro, including the 27-minute Ultimate Warrior promo, I will put myself through for your benefit, dear listener. All the work is... <laughs> I guess you could call it a labor of love. Maybe not in situations like that, but this is why we do that. And I would like to take this opportunity to thank Mr. Bob Bamber were coming up with this crazy idea back in the summer of 2013 that he wanted to explore wrestling's past for somebody who had been a fan since 2005, done a lot of work for WrestleZone, but didn't really know what we now know as the second boom period. And if anything, he wanted to tell that story himself. So he got a couple of other guys on board, and here we are five years on. And if this is the first show you've listened to or you did only join us, say, a year ago, I recommend that you do go back to the August 1993 show. You'll find it there in the archives. Give that a listen. See what you think about how the show has evolved in those five years and think, dear listener, where we might be in five years to come as well. But again, I'd like to thank you so much for listening. It could not be more appreciated if we tried. I know I speak for everybody on the staff. I speak for Dan. I speak for Eric. Everybody who has ever appeared on a show in the five years, I'd like to thank you as well. I just love listening back to the old shows, getting the new shows in my inbox when I'm not on them. My commute to work is always a lot, lot better. Sometimes even my time at work is improved by listening to the shows. Don't tell my boss. I'm going to wrap this one now before the tears start to flow. As Austin would say, we don't need too much sentimental crap, especially on a cynical pro wrestling podcast like this one. We still have two more shows for you to come this particular month. Volume 2, looking at ECW, the Heatwave pay-per-view. And indeed, when I get there, Volume 3, WCW, Road Wild is the pay-per-view. But from me, from Eric Lansom, from Dan Welling, from everybody who's ever appeared on a show for the last five years. Until next time, goodbye, and I'm going to play you out with this.
Shazma. Nano, nano. Only joking. I really am going to play you out with this. Yeah.